PS Plus goes big. Double slash. And State of Play returns. Well, hello and welcome to Triangle Square, the PlayStation podcast. I'm your host, Brett Beck. And alongside me, as always, is one Mr. Chris Figs. Chris, how you doing, sir? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing well. If you are new to the show, we hope you stick around and enjoy what you hear and or watch, depending on how you're choosing to consume this. Uh, but before we get into an episode that's going to be full of uh, looking at Hogwarts Legacy's long-term support, uh, getting an idea of what you guys think about games as a service, games as a service on the community level, as well as PS Plus and State of Play coming back around. We're going to start in the time-honored tradition that we always do with this show, and that is simply catching up on what each of us has been playing so we can get good ideas for each other, for things that we may not have seen, and may also put games on your radar or each other's radar. So with that being said, Chris... As always, I will defer to you. What have you been doing? What have you been playing? Um, <clears throat> so I've been playing a lot more Hogwarts Legacy. Probably about 35, 40 hours in. Um, I think okay. the game is really good. I think it's a slog at times. So the cl- at least if you're going for trophies. Because um, I've been doing a lot of the collectibles and it's starting to just get... I don't tedious isn't the wrong word, but there's so many collectibles that it doesn't feel like I'm making progress. I don't know if you've experienced that. <laughs> oh, you mean like in other games? Yeah, because like I, there's like 600 something collectibles, so like you'll spend an hour clearing it out, and you're like, oh, I got 20 done. You know what I mean? And that that's, yeah. that's a little painful. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's too much. I mean, there's always that conversation to be had about can trophy design okay i guess the best way to say is can trophy design make people who do choose to interact with that have a worse time with the game and i think there's always a balance that needs to try and be made to make a fun but difficult trophy list at the same time as making sure that going for the trophy list doesn't make people think less of your game Uh, because ultimately the trophies is just one more perception point for the game as a reminder in people's heads of how they feel about the game. And that can impact word of mouth to some degree, not strongly. I think most people would be like, Oh, if you're a trophy hunter, this is something you may not like, but there's a couple of ways that that can manifest in impacted sales, right? Oh, Mm -hmm. I'll wait to play it down the line. Oh, I'll, skip it entirely because I care about trophies a whole lot. Oh, I won't play it at all. Definitely when you have something like a trophy glitch like they had up until very recently. Yeah. Um, so trophies are a, uh, are a very love-hate thing. We talk about them all the time and we have that uh, trophy competition going on and, and we it's do. fun. But that doesn't mean that going for trophies is always going to make your game shine. <laughs> you know? Right. I mean, I so. think <clears throat> there's some argument in my head of like, well, if this is what you're going to do and people are reacting this way, then maybe it'll. I don't know. I had a whole point and I, I kind of lost it because I realized I wasn't making much sense. But I think kind of what I'm thinking about is just the fact that a lot of the stuff in there feels like just added bloat. And I wonder if there's an argument in terms of looking at stuff like this of just being like, hey, people are going to go through this and. If if you're setting me this goal, right, make the goal feel less tedious, 
I guess is more my main point than anything else, right? It's like you have to know 600 collectibles, putting it out there so that 10% of your audience gets them all. You would think you'd want to spice that up a little bit, even if you don't expect everyone to go for the trophies. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, I think, you know, the way I like trophies to be best utilized is to push people into looking at specific mechanical ideas or interacting with certain content in the game that they might not do uh, if you didn't push them with trophies. And part of what I mean by that is exploring a whole map and finding more Easter eggs and finding, uh, you know, so like, not that it was perfect, but I think Forspoken was really interesting because a lot of its trophies were just about exploring the world and i think that game had a really fun exploration loop because of movement in particular Uh, it doesn't mean that it can't eventually wear on you but i think that game utilized its trophies to help push you to realize how fun Mm -hmm. the traversal was but in part this highlights another part of the game that you could see as an issue and that the main story for forspoken hardly touches the majority of the map so it's a very big open world as it needs to be for that type of traversal. But you're only seeing maybe a quarter to 30% of it in the main story, which is kind of cool because you it, it even it furthers the sense of exploration for going towards the trophies because you're getting to see things you literally haven't seen unless you are going way out of your way throughout the events of the story. But it sounds like Hogwarts is kind of having the opposite. It's for the sake of a trophy, it's trying to push you into doing all this extra exploring. But unless exploration is in and of itself incredibly rewarding because of the game's base mechanics around it, you might be pushing people to lose the magic of exploration that a game right. like Hogwarts should have. You know yeah, what I mean? Exactly. Because <clears throat> it's it's always fun, like the little bit of combat if you decide to walk or even flying the broom. I know there's a lot of people who don't like the brew mechanics i don't mind them but i i've always i always have fun doing that and it's one of those things where for me i've identified it as like all the merlin trials it's got to be like 150 of them and there's four maybe four to five different variations of it and multiply that out you know 30 of each on uh being generous it starts to get painful (laughs) you know and especially when it's like my biggest problem is there's no defined range, at least in my experience, of where this puzzle takes place. So you'll have a puzzle like, oh, you have to you have to blow up these rocks with Confringo, and then you can't find one of these rocks, and it's far enough away that it's not showing up with Revelio, and then you're just running around in circles, not sure if you're even looking in the right spot. So... Well, that's kind of interesting because, like, I, I started Hogwarts, uh, Hogwarts Legacy yesterday, finally, yeah, uh, for nice. a very specific reason that I'll get to in a second. But a lot of the game utilizes the purple circle within the minimap to give you, like, a hey, this is within the area that you need to be looking for this goal, right? And I would have imagined that they would use that there, and it's a hit or miss thing because I can see it being fun that it doesn't try to hold your hand and it tries to be like we're just going to give you a challenge and let you <clears> rise <throat> to it. Um, but if you're going to put that quantity in there, those challenges better be really fun and not frustrate you, you know, uh, and that comes into that quantity over quality thing and that there's probably a good mix realistically. But, um, I think back to the type of game that it seems like Hogwarts might be in the long run and I'm not far enough to have a strong opinion myself. Uh, but I see people talking about it 
And I think it's pretty easy to point to games like um, Assassin's Creed Odyssey and Valhalla and uh, games that have been around since fairly early in Hogwarts' development to say these games came out, were bigger and bigger and bigger each time, and they continued to sell more and more and more each time. And that kind of pushes these developers and people into thinking, this is something people like. We need to design toward it. Um and for some people, that will be great. Some people will just want to spend as much time as they can reasonably pull out of that world. But I think you've really got to try and strike a fine balance. Yeah. I, I just don't think you ever want it to get to a point where someone is just like, this doesn't feel like I'm making progress. So I think that's the biggest issue for me that Hogwarts has. And Yeah. It makes stuff like, because I think what one of the things you get is I'll have situations where I've been playing it for a while and decide to do a quest, but I, uh, because of how long I've been kind of in the game, I'm just skipping dialogue by accident because I'm at a point where I'm just trying to move because of how long I've been in it. So I feel like you end up hurting the game a little bit, whereas something like Spider-Man... I think had just enough that it wasn't tedious and they were spread out and more worthwhile. Like these are great. Yeah. They have lore stuff. They have this, all this, but I thought Spider-Man's what 20, 25 backpacks was very digestible. And then each one was interesting and you can't make 150 trials. Interesting. You can't make a 500, 600 field guide pages. Interesting. Uh, and I, I think, think that's people would sometimes things. disagree, though, right? Because, like, to counterpoint, just to play devil's advocate, a game I didn't enjoy, yeah. uh, at least not nearly as much as everyone else. But I think that's exactly what, like, uh, the Merlin challenges, at least as you're saying them right now, uh, of course, with a lot looser constraints. But this kind of sounds like the, um, what are they actually called? I can't think right now. But the um, shrines, is that the word for yeah. them in Breath of the Wild? Mm-hmm. Where there's easily over 100. Yeah, I think there's more than that. Yeah. So with that in mind, I think that game right there gets a lot of love for doing exactly the same thing. And to your point, part of why I actually got bored of Breath of the Wild is that eventually I did enough shrines in my time of playing the game, you know, 15 to 20 hours or whatever, uh, while trying to move through the story that I started noticing it copying the same mechanics at multiple shrines and just slightly twisting them. And eventually that kind of started to get boring. And as, as I talked to more people who did more of them, I thought, oh, that's that's not necessarily an uncommon occurrence. And then it just becomes a, do I really want to do that? So, you know, some people love that. Some people don't. Um, conversely, while we're kind of looking at that ideology, right, um, I think I just got the Platinum in Dead Space. So that's why I just finally started uh, Hogwarts Legacy. And the trophy that originally was keeping me from even thinking that I would bother with Dead Space is the Impossible Mode trophy. And for some reason, shout out to Kevin Bacon Bits, because seeing him do it, (laughs) somehow seeing him do it made me feel like, I guess it's doable. And then it just made me do it. And I'm happy to say I didn't have to because they've updated one of the cheeses out. I think the other one still works. I don't know. But I'm played on the newest update, so I didn't use it. But one of the cheeses was apparently that if you went on impossible mode, once you die, you can save on your first save slide as many times as you want. 
But once you die, the game will either make you restart impossible mode from the beginning, or it'll allow you to keep playing that save and just knock you down to normal hard. And apparently the trophy was glitched in such a way that even if you knock down to hard, you could play the rest of the game on hard, die as many times as you wanted to, and when you rolled credits, it would pop the trophy, but you would get none of the other impossible mode rewards. Yeah. So if you're just wanting the platinum, that was a way to do it. Uh, the secondary cheese is apparently that the death animations take like five seconds to get through, and if you die, as long as you pause and return to main menu, you can just reload from your last save, because it only gives you one save space yeah. so that you can't you know, manipulate it that way, but that's kind of a still way to manipulate it. I didn't end up having to use either of them, and it made me feel like a god playing the game. <laughs> and uh, it's it's interesting because it, it was really like it wasn't that bad at first, and you know, I, this was, it was my third playthrough, and I'm I'm kind of liking this to uh, likening it to Hogwarts because of the fact that I did three playthroughs. So when I think about the playthroughs that I did, there's kind of this thing where. I spent probably 30 hours total on Dead Space doing everything, maybe th- maybe 32. Um, but I don't know if 32 hours in Hogwarts Legacy from my own experience, because I haven't gotten there, is going to feel as rewarding to me as replaying the same roughly 12-hour section or seg- you know, story and, and whatnot of, of Dead Space. But... I at least think that the design ideology behind the trophies makes more sense in making you want to push for the game because it's like play the game on impossible mode and the challenge only serves to heighten the point of dead space in the first place, which is to be a horror game when everything, when you have to worry about the cost of death and it completely stopping this run, it makes the already tense scenes that much more tense. It makes the later uh, different, the later challenges in the later chapters that much more challenging, and it gives the game a very different form of um, challenge ramping. Like it, it was really weird because the last three chapters completely changed. Up until then, I was like, I'm kind of flying through an impossible, and I'm doing really well, and I'm always having money and anima- and ammunition and health and. I'm always at a surplus, like multiple times in the first six chapters. I literally hadn't, uh, I didn't even have enough inventory space to pick up items because I was Mm. doing that well. And in the last three chapters, I was literally struggling to keep enough money to stay alive. Oh, God. To to making sure that I had the health packs needed. And I got down to my last little bar of red health a few times with no way to go Uh, back up until I visited a store. And I got very lucky. Um, so Congrats. I, I, yeah, but that's, I think impossible mode was the most fun I had playing dead space all for one trophy, but that's cause dead space isn't worried. I guess it is. I got lucky or I, you know, Chris, you know me, I don't play games with gods. Yeah, you don't. So I got the, I got the 80% of the collectibles or whatever, the, the logs, audio logs and all that on my yep. first playthrough naturally just because I did enough exploring. Um, so I guess I kind of got that out of the way, but that's what I feel like Hogwarts should be. And my, it'd be a lot more fun to me if it was like, you have to get all the collectibles, but you're probably going to realistically get about 70% of them on your first playthrough, and then it's just clean up. That can right. be fun. So yeah. that's unfortunate, but that is what it is. So, all right. Um, yeah. I, um, what else have you been playing? Because I know there's one little <laughs> game that... Uh, 
comes to yes. mind. Yes. So I've been playing uh, Legend of Dragoon, The Legend of Dragoon. Um, I've always wanted to play it. It's one of those like games I feel like I should have played and never did. I started gaming with the uh, OG Xbox, so I didn't have that experience. And um, I bought it as a PlayStation Classic years ago. So I've tried it on Vita, I've tried it on PS3, and they never stuck. And now that it's on PS5, I've been going through it, and I've been having a lot of fun this time. Really enjoying it. I really enjoy, like we talked about a little bit before the show, I really enjoy the bad voice acting. It's very earnest, and I like that. I'm a big fan of bad, good things. Um, and I'm just enjoying the combat. The story is uh, is fun so far. So I, I'm I'm interested to see the story of Dart and his friends. Maybe I'll, I'll finally get a platinum in Legends of Dragoon. <laughs> be your first platinum this year? Uh, I mean, it depends on if you really want. It'll be the first one that I've done entirely this year. Because I have, I did get the Pinball Heroes Platinum, but I did that with one ah. trophy left. Okay, fair <clears throat> enough. Mm-hmm. That's one I need to add to my list. Might as well, right? Because Dead yeah, Space was easy. Platinum number eight for me. Jesus. <laughs> and uh, inadvertently, it was also my my 140. And I think that's a nice capper game. Yeah, like, that's it, a you solid know, one. Yeah, I like that. It, we've talked about it before, but there's something fun about making your like 10 milestones that much better. <laughs> but... Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you're liking Legend of Dragoon. Um, Hogwarts Legacy has been an interesting one for me so far because I think the game is fine. You know, I'm, as a not a huge Harry Potter fan, I'm kind of just taking it as like a... Like, I, I know some of the things they're referencing and some of it I don't. So I'm just like, this is just a high fantasy game uh, that's very magically inspired. And as such, I'm getting... Uh, if if you remove it from Harry Potter and you're not thinking about that, right? Say you're somebody who essentially knows nothing about Harry Potter outside of the so like the references that people say like Voldemort or something. I feel yeah, like the best way for me to describe this game from a gamer's standpoint is that this is Fable One, and I think a lot of that just comes down to how British the game is. I mean, it's it just is. Uh, but it kind of has that quirkiness to it. And Fable 1 has that thing where you're, as a young kid, taking into the school, the Heroes Guild, and you race through. This is more in-depth than that, but it has that kind of feel. Um, yeah. Meets, essentially, Western Persona, where there's like relationships within the school that you want to explore and go through and, and, sp- and make time for. But then there's like a main plot of the game that you're actually trying to strive toward. Um so it's it's hard to say. And then I think the third game I'd put in would be something like I get big Red Dead 2 vibes from this game for some reason. From Harry Potter? Yeah. Hogwarts? But I think okay. it's I think it's the way that they present the characters in the world. The only thing I'd say that it really misses on, and I don't know why it's so noticeable to me, but the most characters their eyes are very expressionless and it really it bothers me in a mild way where like they're talking and I'm like I don't I don't think I believe what they're saying because their face is not like their bottom part of their face is emoting like crazy and then their eyes are just like static almost very little moves and I'm like eyes move a lot more than that like eyebrows <laughs> move and theirs are not and it's I don't know it, it's it's a little odd it's something I can easily get over because it's a very large, dense game. 
It is a, a little weird, though. <laughs> <laughs> it is a little weird. Ah, well, Chris, speaking of all these very long games that you're playing, Hogwarts Legacy and Legend of Dragoon, hate to tell yes. you, that was originally a very, it was a multi-disc PS1 game, so. My, oh, my. As you know, that means it's uh, it was long. But we have a question. It comes from one of our listeners, Yuna, who says, how do you guys determine when to take a break from your game? Uh, and a couple of examples they threw out are uh, controller charge or headphones needing charging or anything like that. So, Chris, when you're playing a game for many an hour, how do you personally determine that it's time to take a break and move off? Um, <laughs> Basically, I'm asking you, how unhealthy of a gamer are you? Oh, incredibly <laughs> unhealthy because... The time that I stop, like if I have a day off, like I'll go do stuff, like I'll go for a walk, but like 90% of my day is just me sitting here chilling, playing games, unless I'm with my girlfriend. So like by the time I stop playing is when I'm like, eh, I need to stand a minute and go go walk around or I need to go to bed. It's one of the two. <laughs> so how long on average do you think it is that you go, I need to stand and walk around a minute? Um, I don't know, maybe like an hour or two. You know? I mean, that's pretty good. Yeah. I don't I mean, usually get to play that long, but I feel like that's a, you know what I mean? Occasionally I get to play for a long period. Usually right. two hours is like what I'll play in a day. Um, well, it depends. It's what I'll play in like a single setting. Cause like I play games at lunch almost every day, as long as I get a lunch. Yeah. Um, so I'd say total every day. I'd probably, if I'm lucky, I'll play like two and a half to three hours of games most days. But Sunday, I woke up later because we went and saw friends and I didn't pretty much play games very much at all on Saturday. So Sunday, I decided I wanted to be lazy. And I think I woke up at 9.30, went and got breakfast, came home, played Dead Space until 6. <laughs> <laughs> We left to go eat Chipotle like like four thirty or five ish, um, and then came back and played till like uh, seven actually, and then we went to my friend's house, and then I came home and played for like two more hours. So that was like quite a long day, and uh, that was a good example of my controller was dying uh, because I'd been leaving it off the charger dock the last yeah. few days for some reason, and I was like, oh, I've been playing games for like. Six hours. I, I probably need to <laughs> move, leave, <laughs> and do yeah. something. So, yeah, I don't have a surefire way. Part of it is because I have a wife and a child. So my kid will be like, hey, I want to go skateboard, which I've been teaching her how to do, which has been fun. She's nice. seven, so don't get your hopes crazy up high. But she's sticking with it so far. Knows how to push on her own without having to hold on to anything. She's doing any sick kickflips. Oh, you know, that's what she wants to do, I'm pretty sure, because the only other thing I've shown her is how to pop your board up and catch it uh, whenever you're done. Sure. And she thinks that's the coolest thing in the world. She's super <laughs> inconsistent at it, but when she does it and she catches it, she gives me a look like, yeah, bitch. What the, yeah. Uh, it's <sighs> like her confidence goes through the roof. And it is a cool, you know, like you you take it for granted when you've done it so long throughout your life so the next thing i'm trying to get her to which takes some time is the run where you kind of skid the tail and you run and then you jump on the board to get your momentum going instead yeah. of pushing immediately because she's always like how do you do that i'm, I'm getting her there slowly <laughs> but surely i like that yeah so 
I take breaks often because of uh, a kid. I guess that would be how I determine to take breaks. She'll yeah. come in and say she wants to play Uno or she wants to play Barbie or she wants to play school or she wants to go skate. So <laughs> Kyrie runs my life. That's all you need to know. I mean, yeah, that sounds about right as far as I know from about children. It's kind of what you're supposed to do when you have kids. <laughs> there you go. Successful. So fair dating. enough. All right. Before we get into the community's take question, where if you are new to the show, you may not know, it is where in the previous episode, we find a question that we pose to you guys in the community and let you guys give us feedback that then we then read out loud on the following episode. Uh, There's multiple ways to be part of that, but we'll get into those in just a minute. First thing we want to do is late last year, we had decided to set up a Metacritic draft between Chris and I, and we've got some updates that we had there. So Chris is coming in incredibly lucky at the beginning of the year. Lucky, with he says. Currently, well, lucky for one reason. Currently, <laughs> no game you have chosen has been pushed out of 2023 at a confirmed level. Facts. We would be a lot closer <laughs> if it wasn't for Lost Soul aside. That's true. Okay, so with that being said, Chris's three games are Persona 4 Golden, sitting at an 86 currently, Like a Dragon Ishin, sitting at an 82, and then he called Metroid Prime Remastered as soon as they announced, before it was time to get any form of review, which we made that rule that you could do, and that sits at a 94. I selected Hogwarts Legacy, which is at an 84, Forspoken, which is at a 64, Dead Space Remake at an 89. Octopath Traveler 2 at an 84. Atomic Heart at a 71. And Lost Soul Aside at a 0 due to <laughs> being pushed out of 2023 entirely. Brutal. So I was, I was too bullish. That's the problem. Um, too bullish twice. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, here's the thing. I'm assuming you're talking about Forspoken. I am talking about Forspoken. And that is fair, but as I chose it, I said, this feels risky. <laughs> oh, yeah. And it was. It was clear, a clear risk, yes. Yeah, as, I, as we were talking about right before recording, the problem that I'm having right now is that both of the games on my list that are not in great position as far as serving me point-wise are Forspoken and Atomic Heart. Mm-hmm. And I very much enjoyed Forspoken, and Atomic Heart looks awesome. I've watched a few reviews and it looks fantastic, but it doesn't matter what I think. It matters what the reviewers that I tend not to care about think. And I don't know why I ever agreed to do this in the first place, but it's it's just fun. fun. Yes. So with that said, Chris currently stands at an average points total of 87 and I stand at an average points total of 65. Uh, As the year goes out, we will occasionally update that as a lot of games hit the list I have gotten a lot of games in the last two or three weeks. So it's been yeah. very interesting. I've got a couple coming in the next few weeks. So, yeah, that zero pretty much ensures that I will still just be in the 60s no matter how well Dead Space did. <laughs> well, you got to hit like maybe one or two more games. You're getting hurt by Atomic Heart and Forspoken. Those are some brutal, like Lost Soul Aside, you could have absorbed if you hadn't taken those, you know? Yeah, no, you're you're right. Well, but I would still be in the low seventies at that point, but it would not be that bad. That's fair. It's okay, Chris. 
It's okay. With that being said, we are going to move into the community's take. Like I said, if you want to be part of that, you can find us on social media, if that's what you like to do, uh, by heading over to Twitter at Triangle SQRD. You can find us in Facebook. We have a group there called Triangle Squared, a PlayStation podcast. If you ask to be entered in, I will gladly accept you or one of our great mods will. And lastly, you can find us on our Discord, which is always linked in the description below, whether you're watching this episode on YouTube or listening on your podcast service of choice um with that in mind we always reach out on sundays um depending on where you are that could technically change but the sunday before we record the episode we reach out and let you guys have an avenue to return your thoughts to us and then we go through and choose a few of them that we feel like give us a broad conversation points uh, or have some interesting points and we always give preferred reading to our patrons because they are so great and have decided to support the show with more than just their time, which we were already very thankful for. And they headed over to patreon.com slash nartech and gave as little as a dollar per month or more. Uh, so a big shout out to our patrons. We love you. We appreciate you. You make this show happen. And with that being said, our community's take episode, our question for this episode rather, is how do you, the royal you, feel about games? And no, I'm kidding. It's not the royal you. It is you. Real you me feel about games as a service in light of some of these games reaching end of service. Are you a fan and think that the model is going strong? Do you think it was a fun bubble that will eventually pop or were you never really into them to begin with? Now, one thing that was kind of highlighted from this, Chris, is at least the vocal part of our community are not super big on games as a service. Before we get into any of the answers, do you have any theories as to why you think that might be? Do you think there's something inherent about the type of gamer that is not interested in them, that has a higher correlation and want to listen to things like podcasts? Or do you think it's that they just have a higher chance of wanting to respond to a call to action from something like a podcast? I mean, there's a lot of interesting ways we could look at it you know psychologically i think it's just a lot of people maybe they have a games as a service i feel like people either have a games as a service type game they don't really feel as a games as a service because it's 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 kind of a negative term and you're you don't put something you don't associate a negative term with something you love i feel like a lot of the times right like I don't think of Apex as a games as a service in the same way I think of Avengers as a games as a service, even though they both are. So there might mm-hmm. be part of that, right? So what I'm asking, how do you feel about games as a service in a negative light? Especially talking about the news last week, I would look, I would think about Avengers, not Apex. So that may be part of it, but I also think there's just the aspect of people who play those games like only play those games. So I feel like us doing a more general podcast instead of a destiny two podcast. It's probably why we have less people in our audience who are committed to a games as a service. I think that's fair. One other thing that came to mind when I was thinking that through is that we are a PlayStation focused podcast, even though we talk about everything as we see fit. But with that in mind, uh, I think Xbox tends to have more games that are first party that fall under that type of game. And Xbox has always been known more for multiplayer in most games, or really games as a service in general as a multiplayer-focused um, subgenre. So with all those things together, I think us being PlayStation-focused and that meaning most of our listeners are going to be people who are 
fairly PlayStation focused are going to more than likely be people who have not really gotten super into games as a service because of the fact that at that high level of the people that are enthusiasts that listen to podcasts, most of them who love PlayStation are going to be more oriented towards single player games. Yeah, I would completely agree. Now that might start to change as PlayStation gets more first party um, games as a service out that may scratch some IP that is traditionally loved by single player crowds, but we'll have to see. I'm very curious to see how um, factions, mm-hmm. you know, ends up rating. Um, speaking of which, is factions on either of our lists? Because if not, I want to call dibs. I feel like that game will get reviewed. You're gonna call dibs. Are you sure it's gonna come out? <laughs> That's they've a- already said it. Will didn't they? <laughs> yeah. How many times? I'll hold off on dibs and actually look, and I'll further. I'll further, I won't hold the dibs to anything. I will further experiment or look, research, and then get back with you. I like that call. So with my next bench pick, no. <laughs> <laughs> hey, if that's what you got to do, that's what you got to do. But I can't, I can't take another zero right now, Chris. That's I why. I, that's why I was surprised. I'm like, you're really going to take that? They don't even, they haven't even shown I us a trailer. I feel fairly confident that they've talked about it hitting this year, but you're right. Why not wait until we get a trailer? Yeah, get a trailer. <laughs> that says first, otherwise. Man. God, get a trailer. All right. So our first response to the question comes from our longtime listener, longtime patron, Rude Days ninety three. Thank you, sir. He says it sucks. I love Knocked Out City for the time that I played it, and it sucks that I'm not going to ever play it again. But this has been the way in gaming for around 15 years now. My first major PC game was an old crappy game called Dogs of the Seas from 2008 to 2010. And the saddest thing about it was losing touch with the small, great community that supported the game. I think games as a service are here to stay, but as more and more are made, the graveyard for games will continue to rise because at the end of the day, there's not enough gamers or time to support all these games as a service. Chris, what are your thoughts on that response? I mean, I think it's pretty dead on, honestly. That's always been my fear is we keep flooding this market of games as a service and people can only spend so much money. So uh, that's always been my fear with games as a service and seeing like some of them like, that would be kind of neat, but realizing that it's not going to overtake a lot of games and eventually just stop, you know? Man, yeah, you know, one of the things I really want to look at around his response that I think is a very interesting thing um, to touch on is the idea of a game graveyard. And the reason I think it's really important to look at that is that you can look at a lot of games and say that they're dead for all intents and purposes as far as online interaction and stuff goes. But we're getting to a point where far more games are coming out that are entirely online. They have no single player component. They do not exist separate of a server hosting the game. And that means that once those servers hit end of service and they no longer support them and, and pull them down, you will never play that game again. And I've been kind of mulling this over in my head because Microsoft are as a company, right? One of the things they've done from a PR angle is talk about game preservation. But I am trying to find a way to reconcile 
how Microsoft can be pro game preservation, which I'm not saying they aren't, but then how the majority or at least a very large section of their new titles that they've been coming out with are games that cannot be preserved in the traditional sense. Once the time comes that it is no longer financially viable to keep their server up, you reach a point to where that game will eventually be truly in a game graveyard. You can say that Call of Duty World at War is in a game in a in a you know game graveyard, which I don't know. Maybe it still actually has active online servers. But the point being is that World at War still has a campaign that you can play and go through, and it doesn't change anything. That's a lot different than Sea of Thieves, which will eventually cease to exist. Um, and so my sub-question that comes out of that, nice Chris, one. is... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but my sub-question that comes out of that is when you're looking at a game like Knockout City or Anthem or let's say big MMOs that will eventually end, right? Like one day World of Warcraft will no longer be supported or exist. You're right. How do you think we as a gaming community should approach the idea of preserving that game? Is the game preserved primarily through videos that you can watch on YouTube of people streaming that game and seeing the idea of community that the game brought together? Or is it more of this idea of having a version of the game that could be loaded to a personal server that you could upload and hit, but it would never have the player base, right? Because you think about game preservation, we can preserve the game exactly as the game is. Mechanics are in there. The world is there. The graphics are there. The enemies are there. But if you're the only person in that game you were missing 70% of what made that game. It's the experience of the game in in that case is a lot of the game, the community around it. So if that's gone, even if you preserve the actual code and get a way to make it run, have you even preserved the game? Well, first off, it's funny because my controversial take was that game preservation now is living on YouTube for all intents and purposes. So that was kind of my first thought. Okay. And and you kind of more reinforced that because at a certain point, like, is Apex Apex without the 60 other players in the map? Like, no. Right? Like, it's not. But we're at a point now where game preservation is, 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 is it's, it's impossible, right? I will never play Season Zero Apex again. That's the other question. Even if you choose to preserve it in that way, yeah. how do you determine what is the most applicable version of Apex to preserve? Yeah, that's I, probably different for a lot of different people, right? Is it the first form of it? Is it the last form of it before it died? Is it the form of it that had the highest player count consecutive? How do you even determine what one would be the one to try and keep? Because, again, without the community, does any of it matter? Because at that point, the question is, okay, so is game preservation in this sense having a build of each season of Apex stored in some national vault, right? Is that preservation? Yeah, but if you can't play with the other 60 people, 
does it matter that I can I can put a sniper scope on a wingman in season zero, which is a pistol, if anyone's wondering. So it's almost impossible to preserve games. I feel like in a in a in a lot of ways, any game that is updated in a way that balance would change is impossible to preserve. But we're also at a point that every game is impossible to preserve. You can preserve the base mode, but as of to as of the last Dead Space patch. The version that you could platinum without beating on, on impossible doesn't exist. It's not preserved. So, what is really, what are we looking for with preservation? Or is it better to just say, hey, this Apex content creator's video that he he made in season one that shows off all the guns is that true? The, the true game preservation, right? Yeah, it's it's an interesting question. Yeah. Well, you know, Rude Days, I, I really like your answer, and I, I like that it led to that very odd thought process. I'd love to hear what you think about that. I mean, you you talk about uh, your, your your lament of the loss of Knockout City and, and games like Dogs of the Seas. You know, if you had a hand, right, if you had a voice in how to preserve these games, how would you approach it? And would you have an answer, or do you fall towards what Chris and I are kind of talking about, that maybe YouTube as a tool for preservation is more powerful than people give it credit for, or at least even think of. Because I don't even know that it's that YouTube's not getting credit. I think people aren't thinking about game preservation in that way right now because we're still it's still relatively early that games are this online focused and this patch focused. And so we're not thinking about that necessarily in mass. But I think that the group of people who are playing these games heavily right now, 20 years from now, when they can't play any of these games, will really be like, wow, it's kind of cool that YouTube exists in a way that we can watch and witness a version that can kind of give the feeling that we felt. Because you know, watching this guy show off guns, it's also watching him show off guns with other people and other players and his reactions to dying or certain weapons. And that gives you, a, even if it's technically a false, it's a sense of that community. So that'll be interesting to see, Rude Days. Appreciate the response. Um Sweet Gran Turismo Jones, long time, long time listener. Brian, hope you're doing well. Uh, jealous of your new setup, or at least the thought of a new setup. I got to see it. Then I'll determine how jealous I am. But he says, I could rant for hours. I have no problem with them ultimately. There are just too many variables to consider when talking about them generally, especially for Twitter. Brian, I would love to have a longer in-depth talk with you about that because I do know that you've loved plenty of the style of games, right? You've loved uh, The Division. You seem to have quite enjoyed um, Destiny 2. And then you seem to be one of the people that kind of lamented the fact that Red Dead uh, Online wasn't really getting the same type of treatment that Grand Theft Auto Online had been getting. Um, So I'd love to hear your thoughts on those because some of the other games I know that get seasons that you interact with are games like Mudrunner and SnowRunner and all those um, type of games. But they still exist without those seasons in some capacity, don't they? So yeah, I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Um, But one of the variables that I think may come into play is highlighted by Robert Phillips, uh, somebody who has been interacting with us on Twitter. And I know he's been listening to the show for a while. He says, for me personally, it's just time. 
The amount of time you have to put into them without falling behind just doesn't work for me, especially when I have other games to play as well. Now, Chris, you're a big Apex player, right? Yep. And you've played a lot of games like that. How do you feel about games as a service specifically and what they demand from a time factor? Um, I honestly, I mean, I guess I wouldn't even say Apex is a good example. Um, because I don't think Apex requires any time, right? Like, I was forced... Okay, force is aggressive, but it's what I'm going to use, right? I was forced to play 150 hours of Destiny 2 to be able to get the trophy that I needed for the Platinum. I'm not forced to play any games of Apex ever, right? Unless I don't want to miss out on Battle Pass challenges or event stuff. But I don't have to play it for my next game to not go like shit. Whereas in Destiny, if you don't have the God rolls, sucky, wucky sniper rifle, it's over for you. You know what I mean? So it's kind of And that's just on setups. that gameplay level, right? Not even on the lore level that games like Destiny operate within, where if you choose to skip a season and jump back in the next your context for what's happening and why is severely hampered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause I think that's I'm, a really good point. Cause like you said, it's not that the game forced us. It's that the way the trophy operates going back to trophy design, the way the trophy operates, the <coughs> only way for you to get it. And they may have brought back a prestige raid finally, but at the time, the only way to get it was to do grandmaster nightfalls, which you can only do when you've reached a light level that is beyond well beyond the max light level. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which means you can only get there by leveling up this seasonal item that gives you excess light level. Um, so yeah, it's a really interesting idea. A lot of other people kind of bring that up, right? So video games as literature over on Twitter says, I'm not into them, but that's because I like to play things at my own pace. I don't like being forced, basically, like you said, Chris, <laughs> uh, to play a specific game or risk consequences like falling behind. Um and I mean, I get that. But one of the things I think is going to be the real understanding is something we'll get to on um, No Fate here. I'm going to go ahead and pull his up above. He says, and he's a longtime patron, longtime listener. Sean, hope you're doing well. He says, some do it better than others. I've played many hours on Warzone, whereas I've avoided grindy games like Destiny, Anthem, Avengers, etc. Someone must know that the industry will suffer in the long term. I see more studios going under if they can't find the right balance. And I think that that what strikes kind of true at the heart of what he's saying is when you have so many games that require so much time, but only so much of a market share of people who want to play the type of game that games as a service are, inevitably, games are going to fail And inevitably, some of the studios behind those games are going to see some form of fairly large impact, be it being shuttered completely or be it something like what happened with Marvel's Avengers in where Crystal Dynamics was sold in large part due to the underperformance of... Um, Marvel's Avengers. Now, there's a question to be had, and one of our other patrons, uh, Mark Schutz, had mentioned that some of these games live and die based off of potentially unreasonable expectations of success. Um, But 
you know, it's kind of how it is. But Chris, I noticed that you tend to not really play multiple styles of games like that at a time. Is mm-hmm. Apex the one you go to because it does feel like you can drop in and out as opposed to games that are, you know, more meta heavy in a sense? Because I mean, would you say Apex has a meta? Yeah. That rotates, right? Yeah. With the seasons? Right. A hundred percent. It's all, it's, I mean, it rotates with the patches, right? Once the nemesis gets, you know, nerfed, that it's out of the, it's going to be less or less used. But right now, it's, it's all, it's all nemesis's, nemesis eye. So in in contrasting it against something like Destiny, where you've got to do missions that are season timed right. to get weapons that you can only get during certain season runs, the difference for Apex, I would then assume from what I have played of it, is how do you go about getting those weapons? Can you do you buy them and they're always available in perpetuity, or are they just automatically an option because of the more battle royale aspect where you can just find the gun in the map? Oh yeah, you can just find the gun in the map. You drop in with nothing in Apex, so that's what that I thought. New gun, but I didn't know if there was just, a, a version that had a, a had a loadout of sorts. You know? Yeah, no. So that I I don't know. I think the problem with games like Destiny is it just it requires your time, and that's why I gravitate towards Apex because I can take three months off of Apex and drop back in in three months and not miss anything or realize that an entire bit of the game's story and lore is completely deleted because they had to make room for other stuff. Like I can, I don't have to worry about that too much. So, so let me ask you something as somebody who does play apex and interacts with games as a service in that way. Do you personally think that the time requirements that people often mention are, overstated and overblown and not really that widespread through most of the games of the service industry? Do you think it's just a few games that get highlighted and people point towards that just because of a few big games like Destiny that do have that problem? Or do you think that there is a large portion of the industry for games of the service that does have that problem and Apex is one of the outliers? No, I I just think it's the type of game. right? Apex is a specific type of game that I don't think you could really get away with what Destiny does. Destiny is a story. Destiny is an MMO for all intents and purposes, where Apex isn't. So I just think it's more the type of game than anything else. Yeah, because I think back to like one of the few games as a service that I've actually gotten quite you know into on multiple occasions and then get out of and come back into without a problem is Sea of Thieves. Mm-hmm. I love that game. You know, We talked about earlier how that game will eventually cease to exist, but... Um, realistically, I cannot play that game for a year and then go back and have a great time because things are introduced and there's new things. But as of yet, no content has been pulled. There's no story really related things. I mean, there's time things. Like, I don't know if the Pirates of the Caribbean missions are still in the game. So that might be one example. But yeah, for the most part, I don't see that as a problem. We got one more quite long answer. But I like the level of detail they go into in describing why they feel the way they do. So last one comes from our patron, Derek Porter. He says, I'm glad to see it go. At first, it was a cool idea. Release a game with some content. Continue to add to the experience through seasons or updates. Keep the fan base interested in the game for a longer period of time. However, as far as I can tell, it seemed like there was one main problem. The games would often feel incomplete or short, leaving the gamer eager for the next season slash update 
just to get their money's worth. Then, for those that enter the game late in its life cycle, they are playing catch-up to have the same experience as those that bought it day one. In the end, it just feels like an experiment in putting out games that really weren't complete. Get a game experience that is about 75% of what they envision while still getting 100% of the purchase price, then slowly insert the remaining 25%. That's really an interesting one, but I do think that this seems to be more pointed at the strongest examples of this, which are games that are straight on basically MMOs like Destiny, games that are still probably not MMOs, but they're closer to it, like uh, D- The Division, which you could, I could argue that Division is probably just as much of an MMO as Destiny. I think just Destiny wears its MMO heart on its sleeve a lot more these days <laughs> than The Division does, um, and games like um, Warframe. So I think this is kind of speaking to what we talked about, Chris, where I think there's a few examples that strongly paint people's opinions and create a feeling that can be a easily and accidentally applied to a industry at large that is not necessarily a fair representation. That doesn't mean it's not okay to not like games as a service or want to see them at least lessen in popularity, uh, in part because, like uh, Rude Days talked about, you don't want to see games that you love eventually become 100% gone. Um, but I do think that one's interesting because I there's truth in this, but it's hard to view this statement in my you know from my perception as indicative of the majority of that industry. As much as I don't really deal with that industry, I can hop into trials of mid uh, of Midgard right now, mm-hmm. and I will have missed nothing because they add content. But it's a very gameplay driven game that you run into and it's like a roguelite just like you're kind of seeing with apex and like you see with other games that are the same. Um, I don't think you could argue that games like Forza, right? Forza horizon where they add cars that you can probably only get at certain times and Gran Turismo seven where they're updating the cars that you can buy. And if you don't play all the time, you may miss cars you want, but I don't think that's quite the same as, destiny one right like a good go-to example for him is destiny one where that game did feel incomplete you get to the end of the story roll credits and you're like that what that felt like the beginning of the story that felt like the epilogue and now you're rolling credits and i have to wait until something else comes out um but you know not every game i think has suffered that exact fate hmm chris you have any thoughts on that one um i mean i i agree and disagree i guess i don't know i don't necessarily feel like the games like he as he puts it getting 75 percent of the experience for 100 percent of the price i i think that that reminds me a lot of the old uh do you remember when call of duty would always get that they just copy and pasted the last game with a new skin you know and it always i was a call of duty guy big time at that point so i was always like oh that's not true they made a they made their own game and it, it's it was like half true half false right it was sure. it's it's the same mechanics in a lot of ways but the game is entirely different and i feel like you know you look at something like division and that game is going to take like let's say generously 30 hours to max out and then you have all the end game content and they're adding more there's definitely examples destiny 1 is a great one of a game that 
was meant to be a games as a service and then barely delivered anything at, at launch. You yeah. know. And Anthem for a lot of people was the same thing. Right. Even though Anthem at least told a complete story, it still is goes to show your balance of what people expect yeah. versus what they get and how that can I guess all I would say is that the way that Derek speaks on this, and I understand why, is that this happens all the time and they get away with it because the games are successful and they just get to do it anyway. And yeah, Destiny mm-hmm. ended up being a huge success. Um, but I don't think it was always understood that Destiny wasn't going to fail. I think that even they knew that because if it wouldn't have been for the Taken King expansion, I don't think Destiny would still be around. <laughs> I would agree. And then I think when you look at games like Anthem that didn't even get the chance to do the same thing, uh, Anthem was deemed not enough game uh, for the price and for the type of game that it was. Therefore, Anthem still exists, but only in so far as you can play the last version they updated. And eventually that will fall by the wayside as well. Yeah. Uh, so... I don't think Anthem is can can be considered a success. So uh, I get your um, I get you where he's coming from with it. I do, Derek. But I think that realistically, most of the industry is probably not going to be that. But I would also argue that as far as games as a service as we know them right now, that aren't realistically just MMOs in disguise. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I think that those are still a little more nascent. And I think it's going to take a little longer for us to see how those types of games actually do work in that regard. Because I think it's a really hard argument to say that Apex or Warzone 2 or Sea of Thieves or Grounded or any of those games were 75% of a game for 100% of the purchase price in that sense. So time will tell how true that ends up being in mass. But I think we're just going to have to wait. Uh, with that said, Chris, Brett. I appreciate you uh, chiming in with that. But I think it's time to move into the news. What say ye? Let's do it. Hey, harpoon. Anyway. <laughs> harpoon us some news. Yeah, I will. I'll harpoon us out some news. Uh, The first piece of news is after the highly successful launch of Avalanche's Hogwarts Legacy, many suspected the team would move on to doing some post-launch DLC for the title. However, game director Alan Two has cast Avada Kedavra on that idea, at least for now, saying, quote, we've been really heads down bringing Hogwarts Legacy to life. So at the moment, there are no current plans for DLC, end quote. Hogwarts Legacy sales have already been massive. It had the biggest launch in Europe outside of FIFA and Call of Duty since 2018 with Red Dead Redemption 2. Chris Dring of GI.biz reports that digitally, Hogwarts is outperforming, or sorry, performing at 56% higher than (laughs) Elden Ring if the game can maintain its torrid pace one would have to imagine that dlc might come back on the table um there's a lot of there's a lot to unpack there i think the game um had a pretty fraught development and i think it's had a fraught road to release and if anything i wouldn't be surprised if part of what's going on is no dlc so that everybody who worked on that game just kind of has a chance to like, Take a break. I'm not saying there won't <laughs> there won't be a follow up, right? Yeah. Maybe there will. Maybe there won't. But let's say that they are following it up with another game in that world. 
if they don't do DLC, which will be announced and talked about and marketed and therefore back in the social conversation, therefore bringing the ire that came with that, I think that there might be a want from them to say, hey, we can just work on a follow-up game that will hopefully be as successful that we won't have to talk about for at least three years. And that means that we get three years, two years, whatever it be, of not having to live that life. But it's hard to say, you know. <laughs> yeah, I would just be surprised if they didn't find if they didn't want to take advantage of this. Um, but a lot of the stuff I've seen suggested to me seems like full games in a lot of ways. Because um, one of the big ones I've seen is Quidditch, right? Uh, spoilers for the first five seconds of Hogwarts Legacy. Uh, skip. <laughs> five seconds five four three two one there's no quidditch in the game um and people talk a lot about that as if that's something they would add and to me which i i said in our discord which you can join in the link in the description is that that feels to me like a live service game right like here's your competitive quidditch game mm. and that i would say that you might be right considering that and this is coming from someone who has not reached the point in the game where you can do broom, you know, stick flying. If they're going to make Quidditch, and honestly, the answer might be that Quidditch isn't in the game because they were not able to come up with a compelling and competitive enough level of control for the broomsticks that everyone who playtested liked. I'm not right. even kidding. Considering how split people have been on whether they like or even care to use the broom flying in this game makes me think that that's probably the answer. So it's either that another developer is going to have to come on board and do that and face the same potential backlash and just general social, you know, being in the eye of the storm is not always a great thing. And no. I think it's completely fair to say that no one, that anyone may want a break at this particular time, because unfortunately one of the good sides of the internet is that you can connect with people far more easily. Um, one of the downsides of the internet, you can connect with people, people far, far more, more easily. easily. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it is the true double-edged sword that comes, and I think it leads people to trying to um, put things on people that are not true to who they are for a number of different things. So with all that aside, I'm curious to see how this will end up playing out. But at the same time... Um, the real reason I think something may come of this, not necessarily DLC, but just a follow-up game, is that the last few Fantastic Beasts movies have been consistently trending downwards in how much they've made in their popularity. And this game is the inverse. Uh, controversy and all, this game is massively successful. Now, I don't know. Let me take a step back. This game is massively successful from an outside-looking-in perspective. I have no clue what Warner Brothers spent, how long development was. It seems that it was around five years. Um, and with all that in mind, I don't know what WB considers a success. Um, but I would imagine that since it's probably the most successful Harry Potter thing, they would probably be bullish from a company who wants to make more money standpoint to do this again. The real question comes, Chris, from whether or not a follow-up game that may or may not experience the same level of controversy 
would be as successful. Because I think everyone would be a little foolish to say that for all the drama that it caused and a lot of very bad things that it caused, yeah, the controversy for this game did have a rather strong impact on sales. Take with that information what you will. Take how you feel about the game from that what you will. But people did choose to support the game or not support the game in some capacity, in large part due to the controversy. Um, And as far as I can tell, it looks like the people who chose to support the game far outnumbered the people who chose to boycott the game. But I don't know if that would happen with a follow-up because by the time that comes, the cultural conversation will have to have shifted to some degree and you may not catch that same, for lack of a better word, you may not catch that same martyrism that this game kind of got to get. (laughs) Fair. So do with that what you will. Uh, But Chris, unless you have something else you want to say, I think we're going to move on to the next piece of news, which is, also good and bad news for you <laughs> <laughs> no um i don't know i think in the end it's funny because i was thinking to myself the other day like i wonder if wb did this on purpose <laughs> like all of the controversy and all of the boycotting and the keeping the game in the public eye there's got to be a part of them while this must suck for some of the people working there there's got to be a lot of people who are like this was awesome this saved this helped us so much it's it's a mixed bag, man. I really got to say, right? Free from how anyone feels about the game. I think that if we isolate that, what you just said, right? If we isolate that out and we look at a company choosing to potentially sacrifice the mental health of their employers, the people who are making the product, mm-hmm. because of the fact that it could help sales, despite what it does or does not do to them, is pretty fucked up. If I'm being honest with myself, if if I'm to think, and you're probably right, but if I'm to think that someone at WB was like, controversy sales, baby, which it does, it always has, it's, you know, shock value sales, and shock value comes in multiple different ways and capacities, um, I would be really disappointed to hear that part of what happened was basically fed into uh, in an effort to increase game sales regardless of what it may have meant for the mental health and or potentially physical safety of the people who are working on this title. But that's the unfortunate part of capitalism sometimes. (laughs) Yeah, um, that's a fair point. But I guess I got to wonder, like, I feel like if you're working on something JK Rowling adjacent at this point, you know what you're in for. Like the Internet's the Internet and it has been the Internet for as long as the Internet's been Interneting. Hey, at this point... At this point, that is fair. The argument against that would be that if this game did start development five years ago, six years ago, the people who chose to work on this game and do that did not know that going in. For sure. And they could not make an informed decision because that's not where the internet or society or anything was when they chose to sign on necessarily. I can't say that with absolute fact, but... It does make whether or not this would happen again even matter. Like maybe a significant people, a a significant portion of the development staff would not want to return for a second game because of a multitude of reasons. Maybe their own opinions on Rowling, maybe their own opinions on what happened throughout the development process of the game and the, you know, fervor around it. There's a lot of ways that people could choose to or not to come back in large part just because of 
the six year period from start to finish. <laughs> yeah, and to be fair, I'm not. I don't want to imply that like the head of WB and JK Rowling were sitting in a smoky room like, oh, say something transphobic this week so the game's back in the news. Like, I don't think that's what's happening. I just think that... You would hope not. You you would hope not. But you would think <laughs> that, that there's is, definitely... If that is, then maybe the Illuminati does exist, and that's <laughs> what it is. I'm just throwing that out there because that is insanity. If that yeah. is truly what leads the decisions behind things, then we're all wrong to begin with. And yes, we should boycott everything. Fuck, the, fuck everything, <laughs> and we're done. Uh yeah, oh. but I do think that there's a lot of there. There must be people who are like, "This sucks," but our bonuses are going to be fatter than they were going to be before. <laughs> I mean, you know, and there's at least that controversy. Just, sell, the though, silver said. linings, silver linings playbook. There you go. I never saw it actually. I haven't. Neither have I. That's the one that has Jennifer. Yeah. What is her last name. You know what? I actually think I did see that one. Jennifer Lawrence and uh, Bradley Cooper. I Bradley Cooper. Yes. Hmm. I haven't. But for some reason, it doesn't seem that different than Failure to Launch with, uh, was it Jennifer Aniston? And, uh, yeah. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, with that said, the next piece of news, good news and bad news this week for Firaxis, the developers behind Chris's 2022 Game of the Year, Marvel's Midnight Suns. First, the positive, the studio's new leader, Heather Hazen, announced that the studio is hard at work on the next game in the Civilization franchise. This is along with continuing post-launch development for Midnight Suns, which is already released along with continuing Oh, sorry. Which has already released <laughs> one expansion with Deadpool releasing a few weeks ago and Venom, Morbius, and Storm expansions announced for the future. Now the bad. A shakeup at the studio has seen Jake Solomon, the director of XCOM and Midnight Suns, departing the studio. Following him out of the door is studio head Steve Martin, which Chris made sure to put no relation. <laughs> You're telling me Steve Martin, the Steve Martin, the jerk, <laughs> Shit from Shinola does not Panther. work at Firaxis Games? No, he does not. You're telling me Cheaper by the Dozen's father does not work <laughs> and did not help design and develop both XCOM and the hit Marvel's Midnight Suns? <laughs> no, but it would be hilarious if he did. That would be so good. <laughs> but... Apparently, that's not the case. Anyway, this ends his 25-year stint within the company. Along with them are 85 other members of the team who are moving on from the studio. This is always an interesting conversation, in my opinion, to have around the continued idea of what makes a studio and what makes your love for a studio persist when you look further in, right? Because you can love Naughty Dog and be ignorant to who stays or leaves and just see their name and see a quality game and turns out it is quality and you love it and you keep perpetuating that love for Naughty Dog. But at the same time, do you feel like if a game comes out from somebody like Firaxis or Naughty Dog or any of these studios, Bungie, and they feel like suddenly they don't like it, do you think that the first thing they think of is, did the people who I loved leave the studio? Like, did the people who made the product I love leave the studio or what? It's a, uh, I feel I mean, like us being podcasters and people who listen to podcasts, they're a little too close to the industry in some ways. I would agree with that. 
it's a little hard to separate and understand why you may feel a certain way. Yeah, no, I would actually completely agree with that. So mm. it's hard because there's, I say completely agree. There's people out there who, and I think the vast majority of people who follow games who think that Bioware, who is making the next Mass Effect, is the Bioware who made Mass Effect 1, 2, and 3. And yeah. no. The main people who made Bioshock are Mass Effect 1, 2, and 3 aren't there. But it's Bioware, yeah. so I think a lot of people are comfortable being like, oh, they're returning to the franchise they know. And it's like, nah, those dudes are gone. <laughs> yeah, and you, you know, part of you wants to look at this and say like, the people coming into Firaxis, you would hope would be people who already had love for Firaxis, and therefore the spirit of the studio will live on, even if the people who originally made up these things may have left. It's hard to know if that's true, though, you know, because I think like there's been quite a big development shakeup at our developer shakeup at like Sony Bend, yep, post Days Gone, and the reality has to hit at some point that like. The days, the Sony bin that made Resistance, uh, Retribution, and the Siphon Filter games that I love so much, and um, Days Gone and Uncharted Golden Abyss, most of them aren't there. And mm-hmm. that studio's decision making process and the people who do those things and creative leads and whatnot aren't there. That does not in any capacity mean that their next game will be bad, but it does mean me being a little too close to the studio means that. There's a little bit of trepidation for their next title because a lot of the drive behind a game like Days Gone that I did love is not necessarily there. So yeah. it, it's, a, it's a weird thing. So for you, as someone who loves Paraxis, does this have – are you feeling some type of way about this, Chris? How's that make you feel? Um, I mean, this would be, be your therapy session. <laughs> it sucks, right? Um I really enjoyed Midnight Suns, so seeing the guy who directed it leave sucks. But then you also wonder, like, maybe him leaving will help some of the stuff that was really boring about Midnight Suns, like how I skipped the entire story and every single piece of dialogue in that game because it sucked. (laughs) Yeah. So there's positives and negatives with everything. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to go into the next piece of news here, and this one's going to be a pretty big one. So PS Plus, if you have not seen, has decided to do pretty big stuff for February and seemingly moving forward, kind of showing what I would say is Sony's uh, commitment to this new style of PS Plus that they're doing. And it brings with it one very interesting addition. So the February PlayStation Plus game catalog and classics catalog titles have come out. We already knew what the February big games were for the all tiers, but specifically the uh, extra and premium tiers have brought with them Horizon Forbidden West, which is the first time we're seeing since this service has popped a large, big AAA first party title hit the service. The Quarry, Resident Evil 7 Biohazard, one of the games that was on the, um, and still is up until they get rid of it, but was on the PS Plus collection. Outriders, Scarlet Nexus, uh, Borderlands 3, Tekken 7, and The Forgotten City. Now, premium members are also getting, of course, access to a couple of new games. 
And those are The Legend of Dragoon, as Chris has been playing, Wild Arms 2 as another PS1 classic, and Harvest Moon Back to Nature as yet another premium classic. Um, Now, there are other games within that, but I think one of the big things to look at here is that we are seeing a year out from release, pretty much to the date of its anniversary almost, a first-party very highly anticipated, very expensive game that fits Sony's our games are too expensive to take that risk. And we're seeing one year out come to the new um, service for PS Plus. So this is where we can start looking at. I think this game could be, and I'll be curious to see what Chris thinks, but this game could be indicative of how Sony intends to combat Game Pass on their own terms. And this game could be indicative of how long we have to wait for most first-party titles before they hit the service. So there's a lot of big games here, and I do think this is a big blowout month, and I think that they were smart to do it this way. But the real games that I think were big here are Horizon and The Quarry. They're both the newest titles on this list, and Horizon is a very large title. Chris, what are your thoughts on Horizon hitting? And Do you think that it impacts how you think people will view PS Plus? as well as if Sony will keep this cadence up of about a year out hitting PS Plus. Um, I mean, I think it's definitely interesting that Horizon's already there, but I have a feeling that Sony won't keep the cadence so that it's unpredictable, right? Because they don't. I don't think they would want people to be like, okay, like if, if God of War comes out on the one-year anniversary, right? Or at least close to the one year anniversary. I don't think Horizon's in that 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 window yet. But if people can expect, okay, shit, God of War came out in November, Spider Man just came out. I'll just wait on Spider Man. So it wouldn't surprise me if God of War was a year and a half, two years, and then you know maybe something smaller like Ratchet and Clank, which obviously it's past its this, but six months after Ratchet and Clank's comes out, it had been on PS Plus, you know, so it kind of the game to game basis, depending on where they feel, you know, if they feel they can squeeze more sales out. So I think that's fair, but I also think a year is a reasonable thing to say for the most part, any tail we would have had is going to have hit for the, at least for their single player games, right? I think Mm -hmm. I'm still very curious to see how their games as a service title will interact with PS Plus. Um, and if I had to bet, factions will be like a PS Plus premium for free, you know, and then 30 bucks for everyone else kind of thing. See, but will it or will it just be a free to play title? I don't I genuinely don't know. And that's the curiosity around PlayStation. Like, you know, if PlayStation looks at Game Pass and says that Game Pass is untenable for what they spend on these types of projects in their first party, then you would think that Sony would be pretty resistant about wanting to go to a free-to-play direction. I think that they would still try and say, listen, you're getting a Sony first-party AAA games as a service, which means that you're getting Sony first-party AAA quality, and that comes with the fact that we want our game to be supported out of the gate by money so that we can continue to make this type of game and this product at this level. And then I think the Mm -hmm. question has to come, can Sony do that at a successful enough rate for someone to go, wow, this this and this type of game is so much more than what Call of Duty, and Call of Duty is not a fair comparison point. I'm not even going to continue to make that one. But maybe, is this a better 
standpoint than what grounded was like how much of a quality jump is it going to see over sea of thieves and it's a real big question because we haven't seen any of them hit so we don't really know is factions going to have a really in-depth story that it plays out or is it going to kind of be a faux storyline that kind of plays out in a slightly more sophisticated manner than we saw in the last of us one on ps3's factions where you saw little things happening to your group of people and it would reset occasionally you know yeah i don't know it'll be interesting with factions for sure i i could see it going both ways i could see it as like okay we're going to use this to buttress ps plus premium or and then people everyone else can pay or i could see it being like hey we're going to put the deluxe edition upgrade as a free ps plus thing but everyone else it's a free to play title and you get the base game that would make sense to me they already do yeah. the PS Plus DLC for games like that, so it would make sense. Do you think they'll do what like Xbox did for Halo, where you get Game Pass drops if you're a Game Pass sub? You'd think like, so. Hey, we're going to give you double XP. Uh, we're going to give you some season pass level skips or whatever. I would think so, yes. Yeah, that'll be interesting to see. Well, that comes with a question from one of our listeners, though, one of our patrons. Uh, Jehudi MD, longtime listener, longtime patron. He says, do you think that services like Game Pass and PS Plus will continue to push players to not purchase games anymore or at least be very selective about their purchases? What are your thoughts? Uh, I mean, speaking for myself, I'm still buying games too much, so... I, it hasn't affected me, but I think that's always been the Game Pass argument, right? Is, oh, if it's not on Game Pass, I'll wait because it'll eventually show up there. You know, and honestly, I think the attitude hurts hurts worse than anything else because, you know, if you're sitting here every time being like, yeah, I'll, I'll wait for, I don't know, Atomic, no, Atomic Heart's on Game Pass, but I'll wait for Hogwarts Legacy to hit Game Pass. Then maybe by the time you would have, been done waiting there's six more games out that you want to play so in both ways it kind of hurts it's like you're not getting a sale because someone's waiting but you might not get that sale down the line because they've moved past needing to play your game or wanting to play your game yeah and you know that goes back to that business versus artist thing where i think to some degree i think people who create they want a game to sell in so far as it may impact their ability to make money. But since a lot of development is based on them making extra money specifically up front from Metacritic reviews right. and Metacritic score, then I think that most artists has come to the point of where they eventually want someone to play what they spent all these years making. Uh, because it's like you want your labor to be appreciated <laughs> and what you spent time creating. And I understand that as someone who creates, like you do want to put it out there and you just, if you, if you can find one person who meaningfully reaches out and talks to you and tells you about how much they love the thing that you put out, that shit is like fuel for the soul. You know, we have like oh, yeah. three or four or five different people that constantly hit up a band I've not actively done anything with since 2016, 17. And they'll reach out and be like, listen to the EP again today. It's so good. Helping me through something I'm going through right now. You know, and that it's nice because, like, I tell them all the time, they'll be like, Oh, I hope you're getting money from this or from me streaming it or whatever. And I'm like, I don't give a shit at this point. I, any money I may or may not make off of that really doesn't matter. It's not going to be enough to change anything. If you're just listening to it, I'm happy because it's like 
it has a life and legacy of its own. And that's what people want. Absolutely. But the business side of things definitely comes into play here um, where I think most developers would be like, yeah, buy the game on sale. Buy, buy the game when it's $5. Just please play it eventually because we think that there's a lot that you may enjoy. Yeah. But going towards that idea of I, I'm glad that Jehudi decided to clarify, continue to push players to not purchase games because I would argue that going back as far as PS plus and its very initial 2010, 11 launch um, all those years back, I think it set the seed in anyone who's going to lean towards that type of game or that type of purchasing. I think it planted the seed for them to go, Oh, that game could hit PlayStation Plus. So I'll wait yeah. and see if it hits. And I think that anyone who's going to play that way is going to do it that way regardless. Yes, it's going to be slightly exacerbated from Game Pass and PS Plus when so many more games are being added month to month to month instead of it being limited to three or five games a month uh, as they've changed throughout different times on PS Plus and Xbox Game Pass, or not Game Pass, but Games with Gold. So to that end, I think that this has been happening for a long time, well over a decade at this point. I do think that these things are pushing it even further, but I don't, I think the real question comes down to here. And I know some people are a little more doomy about this than I am. I think a lot of people think that subscription services are a, a, an attempt to push people to a point where you don't buy or own anything. And I don't know, man, because I think you can say like subscription services exist right now and have for much longer in a meaningful capacity for TV and movies. And yet people still buy DVDs and people still buy Blu-rays and 4K Blu-rays. And I think at some point there's always going to be a want for any consumer base to have the option to buy an outright own. It's just a question of yeah, it will impact it, but it'll eventually reach an equilibrium to where people who want physical media or just whatever form of ownership they have that they view as real ownership to exist. And then the rest will be happy waiting for things to rotate in and off of different streaming services. And that'll be pretty much what it is. Um, so yeah, I would, I would lean towards selective about purchases for people who are doing that. I don't necessarily know of gaming at large at least in terms of the people who spend the most and make the most profitable aspects of the thing in that first you know year or two are going to truly be impacted by these services, at least not yet. Yeah. But it'll be a time can always change that. <laughs> uh, next thing up, one that Chris probably won't have much to say, but we'll see because he did have a he had opinions on the movie at the very least. Sega says that Sonic Frontier sales greatly exceeded expectations. Quote, the number of units sold greatly exceeded the full year plan at the beginning of the fiscal year. And we recognize that this is a title that we will continue to sell over the long term based on our sales strategies, such as pricing, promotions, and the development of free DLC. When asked, or end of quote, uh, when asked to evaluate the quality of Sonic Frontiers based on critic and player reaction, one exec replied, quote, although it is true that the Metascore was slightly lower than expected, we believe that we were able to release a title that has been well-received by many people around the world, thanks to the extremely high ratings from users. Quote, we plan to release the recently announced additional DLC sequentially 
And we believe that we can continue to build up repeat sales. In addition, starting with Sonic Prime, which started on Netflix in December, we plan to further expand the Sonic IP in the future, such as the third movie and marching uh, merchandising, end quote. So, Chris, yeah, I don't really think you were very bullish or into Sonic Frontiers. Nope. But are you personally surprised by how well it's sold? No, Sonic fans are crazy. <laughs> we are. But one really big point here is that this is the most the Sonic game has sold, and now it's I think it's greatly exceeded even at this point. Uh, but even at the beginning, this is the most a 3D Sonic title has sold since Generations in 2010. <laughs> and it's even outsold Sonic Mania, which is one of the highest-selling Sonic games at all. Um. Which has been really interesting. So my point there, I don't think that this can squarely go down to just Sonic fans in the most traditional sense of that word. (laughs) I think maybe Sonic fans, when we include people who are new Sonic fans because of the movies or the Netflix show or just because of word of mouth around Frontiers. Do you think you agree with that or not? I don't have my finger on the pulse of the Sonic fans. Too honestly. out to even find out, huh? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm sure the movie helped. I'm sure the game looking better than normal helped. Because, um, I mean, there was a point where I was interested in it. So I'm sure all of that helps, um, help, helps the game sell more than they expected to. So that's a good thing. I'm glad people are going to get more Sonic, I guess. <laughs> well... Outside of what you may care about, for anybody that did like Sonic Frontiers or at least liked the idea of it and wanted to see it pushed to a bigger budget, um, the upside that comes with this is that they have said that they will be greatly increasing the budget for the next title as a result specifically of this game far exceeding expectations. So anyone who may have thought, ah, man, that the pop-in for the draw distance is a little distracting or oh, it didn't look or whatever quite as good as I would have hoped for this type of game, uh, maybe that will be something that is addressed in the next title. It would be really crazy to get a truly next-gen feeling Sonic game because I don't think that they've done that. And it failed miserably. But they wanted to try doing that and then rushed it out of the door for Sonic 06, the reboot. It was supposed to be like, Sonic's never looked this good and felt this good. And then they were like, but you also got to rush it out of the door so we can hit the you know, 20th anniversary of Sonic. <laughs> And that didn't work. So weirdly enough, I'd say Frontiers is probably the closest we've got to trying to actually do a next-gen Sonic. (laughs) And as much as I love it, that is not what it is. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Which, that kind of goes to our conversation. You know, we were talking about Mario last week, right? Mm -hmm. We did talk. Realistically, do you think anyone would ever be like, we need next-gen Mario? I don't even think that, that thought process exists because I don't think anyone cares about that I, that part of Mario. People just want more Mario that they enjoy. Yeah, I mean, I think I mean it's 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 clear that Nintendo gets away with not putting their marquee franchises in "quote unquote" a next gen state, and it's because those games are gameplay, gameplay, gameplay games. So I don't know that it. What do you need? For uh, you know, 4K ray traced, you know, Mario jumping on pipes. I'd rather play that. I'd, 
I'd rather play those games in 8-bit versions even today. So, like, <laughs> <laughs> I don't need it. I don't, yeah. And quite frankly, I don't think Sonic did either. Just make a good 2D Sonic game. <laughs> they did. And it sold really well. Yeah. So but there you go. They're, they've done they've done far more bad than good, and I'm glad this this game is good. But like my point is, like I they could just have continued making. They could have bought the team who made Sonic Mania and continued pumping out all those games, and they probably would have been just as fine here. But I'm glad this did well. Um, I hope I hope they do more, and I hope they refine it a little bit. You know, I think there's a balance because you know one of the things about Sonic Mania is I did and I did love it. But it had been so long since we had really had a 2D Sonic in that style that that game got to really lean heavily on nostalgia while still being great. But it reused a lot of the st- a lot of the zones that we were already familiar with, and it didn't really do much new in the gameplay department. And that's okay because it was impeccable what it did. But I don't think you could have just kept doing that. And I think one of the things that has been a boon to 3D Sonic is that more often than 2D Sonic they have been willing to try and reinvent and do something unique. And I would argue that Mario's done the same. Mario has really tried with its 3D games to do something different and unique and have a shtick that you can say for that game. Um, so in that sense, because I mean, like, maybe I'm wrong and there's a good high chance of me sounding ignorant right here. I cannot remember a Mario game that I've seen or played before Odyssey where you could throw your hat and use it to, like, jump in different things. That was a feature of Odyssey, just like Mario Sunshine on GameCube had the water jetpack. Mm-hmm. So they have always gone out of their way to try and do something unique and change the formula and do something like Galaxy was a very different style on the Wii. And then they did something different again when they did uh, Odyssey. Now, of course, you have times where they've not done that and they've done more nostalgia driven games like. Um, what was it called? Um, Super Mario Land 3D and stuff like that, where that's, for the most part, it's just trying to be like, hey, we're going to recapture older Mario games. But I think it'd be false to say that Mario hasn't truly tried pushing since 64. It's just 64 is the biggest one to point at because it was like, hey, we're completely changing the axis in which you interact with Mario. And that's revolutionary in a way that you can't argue that Odyssey is because Odyssey's just continuing to build on what 64 did. Uh, in a in some capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. It'd be interesting to see Mario actually take as much of a turn as I feel like Frontiers did for Sonic as a game. But I don't know that anybody wants that, so they probably shouldn't. <laughs> but in this case, it works very well for Sonic. I'm glad it worked out well for you, my friend. Well, there we go. Next thing up, PlayStation has finally confirmed a new state of play. As we talked about not long ago with Jeff Grubb, uh, it will take place this Thursday, February 23rd at 4 p.m. EST. They set expectations firmly, as they always do, at five new PSVR titles, indie and third-party reveals, and an extended look at Suicide Squad Kill the Justice League. Now, with this comes two questions, Chris, from our listeners. Are you ready? I'm super ready. First, rude cold. One of our longtime listeners and patrons, friend of the show, he says, your state of play predictions. So since we kind of have a framework to put our predictions in, how bold do you want to go? Um, I, I mean, I'm not sure how bold I want to go because it's hard because I'm looking at what they ta- said is going to be there. 
And my boldest prediction is like a Hades 2 date. <laughs> okay. Okay. Or at least an extended look at the gameplay. Like, a, like yeah. hey, we're going to actually see gameplay outside of just what the little flash trailer, you know, the quick flash trailer showed. Yeah. At the game. Um, I mean, I saw stuff floating around about Silk Song date being announced there. I don't think that's happening because they clearly have Microsoft advertising money. Sure, certainly looks that way. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe like a Sea of Stars announcement for PS5. I, could, I wouldn't be surprised if Pixel Remasters got a date, even a shadow drop. I don't know. So it's 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 certainly there's certainly a lot of things, but it's hard because when you're looking at an indie showcase and the third party reveals, those could be anything. Yeah, you know, you might not be off too far. They originally said Pixel Remasters coming spring of 2023. I could see a shadow drop just because mm-hmm. there's a high level of success for those. Then again, a lot of them have happened lately. So it's yeah. like, do you really want to? I feel like one of the things about Shadow Drops is you got to wait a little while. It's got to truly feel like a surprise. Once one happens, everybody kind of has like, you know, when you see you have a jump scare and you expect them to do it again, like the Callisto Protocol just would not fucking leave you alone. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but my point being is that part of what I think makes them work is that it's been long enough and people don't expect them and then it happens. And you're like, oh shit, hot fire rush out of nowhere. Yeah. You know? Um, I don't know. I, I mean... I get what you're saying, but at the same time, uh, it's Final Fantasy. (laughs) (laughs) Fair point. It'll be (laughs) pretty good. I, you know, PSVR is so broad that it's almost impossible to really tell. So, since they're saying new PSVR titles, which doesn't mean they have to be new in general, just new to PSVR, I think that there's a fairly bullish thing to say that one of those VR titles could be Half-Life Alex. I don't think that's anything unique about me. Uh, one of the titles I would have said, but then I looked today and it's joined the the lineup of launch window titles already, is a little PC game that came out that would use your, if you let it, it would use your webcam and it was called Before Your Eyes. And the way that you played the game is that situations would go on and as you played it, whenever you blinked, the game would just move forward a random amount of time and you would see something else. So you could experience more of a moment the longer you're able to hold your eyes open. But once you blink, it picks up on it and moves you and you kind of have to deal with the fact that that moment is gone. And it's a really unique idea and they've announced it for PSVR two. And I kind of see that as, okay, the eye tracking probably is sophisticated enough to tell that you've blinked and that's how that will work. And that's super cool. But since that doesn't exist, it's kind of hard to want to say because a lot of PSVR and big VR titles elsewhere have already come. So I think the only VR title I can reasonably you know, say might be coming is Half-Life Alex. I don't think anything else really makes sense. Yeah. Are you still on, you're still on the Half-Life Alex train is coming? I am. I'm not saying that it's absolute, but I'm I believe, you know. Well, in the in the words of Prabhu the rapper, you gotta believe. <laughs> you just gotta believe. Yeah, you gotta believe. Uh, Indian third party, I do think there's a very high lo- chance that we get to see the uh, Pixel remasters, just so they can have some PlayStation branding behind them. Um, definitely because we've seen them pop up on Play Asia, so I think there's strong thing to support that they are about to do something that's going to make people want to buy them, and therefore they're preparing. 
And then, of course, oh, guess what? I think there's going to be an extended look at Suicide Squad Kill the Justice League, Chris. I had a feeling. Yeah, yeah, you know, that's just gut feeling, but I'm going to follow it. Um, I know that's not a very exciting answer. Indy's so broad that my real hope is that there's almost no way, right? Because I think at this point they view it as AAA. But I would love to see Indies that are kind of in that level of in between like what Pixel Opus did with Concrete Genie. Yeah. But I don't think we're at, I don't know. Like it's been long enough since Concrete Genie that we could get something from them, but I don't think that they would call that indie. Well, and they it wouldn't. definitely doesn't fall under third party reveals. So at that point, yeah, I mean, it, I guess it depends on if we're talking about the genre or if we're talking uh, about true. Because yeah. yes, a it's impossible game is a for first it to party be game. You know yeah. what? I wouldn't be surprised if we saw what is it? Uh, Parkway Drive, that car game. You know what I'm talking about? Where you're only in a car and it's like an apocalypse. Yeah. I think it's Parkway Drive. Didn't they recently show something? Yeah. I don't think it's called Parkway Drive because that's a band. I don't know if you're aware of that. Oh, I was not aware Um, of that. Hold on. PS5, Abandoned Drive or something like that. Pacific Drive. That's it. I got close. I'm sure there's a Parkway in the Pacific. So they recently came back to show something of it. Um Ironwood Studios returns. This is as of February 9th with a first look at gameplay of Pacific Drive. You can't get out of your car. But yeah, you're within the walls of the Olympic exclusion zone. That game actually looks super interesting. So maybe this is the time because they did a uh, they did a drop uh, on the PS blog, but it wouldn't be bad to show it yet again, uh, you know, in a more involved thing. But do you want every game to be in-depth gameplay during that you know it's like i have a feeling they're gonna be quicker so i don't know i don't have a lot of things but there's a second question that comes as part of this that i actually think might be one of those games and it fits both indie and third party uh and that is rude days 93 one of our patrons coming back and he says with the state of play coming up it immediately reminded me of whatever happened to that little devil inside game seems to have just become vaporware I would agree that it's been a long time. Also true of uh, Silk Song, though Silk Song is a follow-up to a very successful game, so less likely for it to become vaporware. I say that this makes sense to me to be a return spot for a little bit one side to once again hit the forefront. If it doesn't, then I can definitely see why there will be more fear that it's become vaporware, but it's hard to say. Chris, what do you think? Um, I mean, I don't, I don't think it became vaporware. Uh, I just, it's not ready. I know that's a cop-out answer, but I would rather they're not, you know, doing anything. Or, I'm sorry, they're not overshowing and they're just working on the game. I mean, the last time we saw it was 2021, around the last time we saw Spider-Man, so. Well, and something to keep in mind, as as unfortunate as it may be, this is a Kickstarter game. Yeah, that's fair. So, one thing I can tell you is somebody who kickstarted a game and finally got to play it um, with uh, the Shadow of the Colossus spiritual successor that came out um, that I am blanking on the name right now for. Uh, I did enjoy Pray it. Pray to I the mean, gods. Pray to the gods, yeah. Um, that game took about six years after I backed it to come. <laughs> <laughs> Do not so, come. Oh, I'm going to come. <laughs> <laughs> and so is Little Devil but, Inside. 
Yeah, so that's that's kind of the point. I don't know that it's reasonable to say it's vaporware, and it always could be. It's always a possibility with any game. But I think part of what happened is that Sony tried to partner with it a little too much, too, a little too quickly. Um, and unfortunately, that just kind of gives you this idea that it was announced too early. It happens. Silk Song has been announced for so long. <laughs> so long, and we still don't have it. Uh, so do with that what you will. And I bring up Silk Song because I think it's I think it'd be a reasonably scaled game to compare uh, Little Devil Inside to, but it carries a much I don't know right. This is the question of is it bigger? Is it is it a bigger weight or bigger burden to develop a follow up to a very beloved indie title, or to develop a first indie title that you really need to show up and show off on? You know, um, I mean, a little. It's, it's the answer is clearly like a little bit of both, right? <laughs> um, I guess it has to be, right? Yeah, because you obviously have to nail your first game, but then it's like, I wouldn't want to be the one making the sequel to Silk Song, <laughs> which or people regard Hollow as Knight. one of the yeah. best. So it, it really, yeah, that's the crazy thing is it is, but I think that it also means it comes with a built-in, a certain built-in level of success. Right. Whereas, right. like uh, somebody making something like Little Devil Inside, this could be everything for them. And if it comes out and it doesn't hit, this could be the end of their development career. Yeah. Whereas I mean, a game like Silk Song can come out, and because it's got that built-in Hollow Knight love and name and expectation, it will probably do well enough, if nothing else, to at least buy the studio enough time to try again. Right. And that's you know, I don't know. It just depends. Like I said, it depends on the game. It, it really does. It depends on the studio. Um, Certainly. Like Hollow Knight, you have to nail Hollow Knight, but you also have to nail Stardew Valley. <laughs> right? Like that, the guy True. who developed Stardew Valley did that shit on his own. And had that game failed, that man's destitute. Game was successful and it's incredible. And that man is a multi, multi, multi millionaire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah really a lot of benefit to being the sole person who could develop a, oh, a massive game yeah but you know not every game can be that though team cherry i think is fairly small so i think that they are seeing similar levels of success with hollow knight even if there's a little bit more people <laughs> right. to go through uh all right all that in mind we are going to move into somewhat rapid fire news so we have tencent who have reportedly scrapped plans to launch its own vr headset reports cited that the significant cost of entry would have prevented the company from profiting until 2027 and that was a large deciding factor in choosing to bow out now with that comes yet another question from rude days 93 where he says so tencent recently left the vr market mainly citing concerns in the metaverse and not making a profit till 2027 at the earliest should this be a cause for concern or is it just a speed bump for VR right now? And Chris, as someone who's not quite as bullish on VR as I am, I think your opinion is equally as interesting and maybe even a little bit more interesting because the real question is, is for people who aren't super into VR, does this make you second guess whether or not you should even think about getting interested and invested in it? Um. I mean, no, because it's one of those things where it's like if if Sony really believes in it and thinks they'll eventually make a profit, I think they're in a position to kind of let it ride. 
and maybe Tencent isn't in that same position, you know? Maybe they don't have anything bringing in money like Sony does, which I guess is absolutely not true now that I think about it, considering they have Genshin Impact. Um, But I I think you just have to... I think as a company, you have to see if you're willing to take the risk. And I feel like with Sony, they already did PSVR 1. They have the basics down, and now it's just a matter of improving. And, you know, you got to think that if they think this is going to be a big thing in the future, they look at... Hey, we're gonna sell two million of these at six hundred bucks. We're just making back our money, um, but we 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 believe in the future of this technology. It might just be worth investing and looking at it as a loss for now, and maybe ten cents just not looking to to do anything at a loss. Yeah, you might be right. I think part of what's going on is that. Tencent is looking at this as, yeah, we ha- probably have the capital and the ability to come into this market hot and heavy, but Facebook did too. And ironically, they are reaching a point where they've sunk too much too quickly into it, and that might be them bowing out of VR completely. That's a, That could be hyperbole. I only bring that up because there are some, you know, I would argue there's some fear-mongering articles coming out trying to suggest that it's for sure going to happen. But I do think that there's a big thing to show between how Facebook views VR's future and how they've chosen to invest within that idea versus somebody like PlayStation. So if you look at Tencent, right, and they have the ability to basically be the next Facebook and throw a bunch of money at the wall to come in and break into this market – do they want to run that risk when Facebook's already done that and aren't doing super healthy with it? Sony are in a different position where they have it tied to something. It's got some level of built-in things because it's PlayStation. And PlayStation VR 1 already spent a fairly solid stint of time as the market leader for VR. Sony has reason to be bullish to try again on a nascent technology. And I think... Tencent looks at this and goes, we would be coming in as a beginner headset. This would be our first launch into it. And if we don't get as lucky as PlayStation did, or lucky is the wrong word because there's a lot of work that comes in it, right? But if we don't do as well as PlayStation did, we might be really flushing that chance of 2027 profiting even further down the drain. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, you know, I think it's hit or miss. Well, and but what, Sorry. No, go. You can. I guess to finish my point, Tencent I think has more interest in allowing their third because most of what they have is interest in third party things, right? They have uh, some stock in Ubisoft. They have some stock in um, Kotakawa. They have a bunch of largely divested stocks. A bunch of a bunch of different companies, and I just think that they're more comfortable putting money into things that have a much higher chance of returning profit quickly than they do taking as big of a risk as VR is currently as a newcomer. I think it's the same reason that you can look, and I bet you could argue that Tencent has probably looked at how reasonable it would be to bring to come into the console market with their own machine, and I bet they reached the same conclusion that. It's too hard to break into this market when you can make money off of the market in its current form by investing elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with that. I also wonder if the fact that they're tied to Facebook's metaverse and that just straight up looking like a dumpster fire, kind of, kind of, I think, objectively, maybe that's one of those things where you're like, yeah, we're good. This is not looking good, <laughs> you know? 
Yeah, you know, the VR talk has been really all over the place, specifically because of PSVR 2. Um, so John Carmack of uh, ID Tech, you know, fame, who left and went to Oculus and is heading that, has talked very highly of what he thinks of PlayStation VR 2 and its its uh, capabilities and how it can move VR forward, while simultaneously saying that he thinks the price is probably wrong, which is interesting because a lot of people have mentioned that it's expensive. Um, but I think that that's a really hard thing to hear coming from the mouth of someone who just rose the price on their VR headset, their entry-level one, the Oculus Quest 2, uh, and then also just subsequently just came out with the or the Metaverse Quest, but whatever, who just came out with the Metaverse Quest Pro or whatever it's called. That is $1,600 or whatever it is. It's well over 1000 So I think it's a little hard for me to hear John Carmack say, oh, PSVR 2 is too expensive. But at the same time, our headset that the PSVR 2 is tech-wise outperforming in many ways is almost a thousand dollars cheaper so it's it's hard to say i think people are looking at different forms of success within this market in the long term i just think it's too hard to say for sure i would classify it of the options you gave us this is a speed bump for vr and it's only a speed bump insofar as it's stopping someone new from entering the game but if you look at it, there's already more people in the VR market than there are in the console market. So to that degree, VR is not doing bad inherently just because of that. Um, I might feel a little different if Metaverse does choose to completely shutter everything in regard to the Metaverse and Facebook completely divests themselves uh, from VR. But even then, I don't know if that's an issue with VR itself or if that's an issue with how they chose to invest in VR and what their expectations were. Um, that's kind of where I sit on it. I mean, like, like, like you said, Chris, Metaverse doesn't really look good to me. But we're also talking about Sony, who's aiming their VR market at gamers in particular, and then facebook who's trying to aim their vr for non-gaming use in the long run every bit of money that they're spending is to try and eventually get to a point where social media is done through vr and workplace things are done through vr and that's not what sony's saying i think sony have chosen a more reasonable niche within their market for vr to be successful and tencent realized that their only way to come in would be to do something similar, and there's enough stiff competition in that specific niche in VR2 and, mm-hmm. you know, Valve, um, their headset, and HTC Vive and whatnot. Right. It's a great argument, too. We'll see. All right, here goes one that's interesting. And, Chris, I don't know if there's an obvious answer for you. Josh Ayers, patron, would you rather a PSVR2 or a Vita2 if you had the choice? Vita2. Had a feeling, but I was a little curious. Can you expound on why? You know, for you, is it just strictly how much you think you'd use one versus the other? Um, yeah, I would uh, just rather have. I would just rather have a handheld console that I could play in bed rather than a PSVR. That's all. 
So it sounds like it's because of the amount of work that's required to essentially go into VR, right? It's asking a lot more of you than saying, just lay on your couch and hit the power button. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I do think that that's a big thing for VR. I don't think, uh, as much as I enjoy VR, right, and I'm very excited for VR too, uh, I don't think VR will ever be a replacement for home consoles. Uh, A lot of people seem to think that AR will be, and I do not think so. I think currently AR is not good enough to feel like it's actually transporting you to another world, which is what a lot of the allure of VR is on the gaming side of things. Uh, And therefore, VR is an easier entry point into something that feels worth the cost of entry, whereas a lot of AR stuff is just like, oh, cool, you can kind of project something into a space, but you can't interact with it in a meaningful way. You can't do anything in it for in a meaningful way in the same way that you can in a VR game. Now, the real question is, will Metaverse eventually work in the way that they are talking about where you can interact with people in meaningful ways? And then if Metaverse is going VR, why did they not choose AR? There's a lot of questions around that. Yeah. But going back to the question of the uh, PSVR or 2 or Vita 2, there's a part of me that has a strong pull for both. PSVR 2 is an easier answer because I already know what it is. And anything about the Vita 2 is a a random amalgamation of what I've imagined it may be. But there's nothing to prove that it would be that, right? So like Chris, in your version of the Vita 2 in your head, what is it? Is it something that's a dedicated standalone handheld? Or is it something that's more like the... Steam Deck, where it's trying to allow you to play your games that you already own from PS4 and PS5 on a handheld factor? Or do you want exclusive games for it like the Switch gets, but you still want it to be able to connect to your TV? Like, what is your version of a Vita 2 that you're like, oh yeah, that's why I'm excited for it? I mean, mine would have been, right? Like, if the Grand Vision had been, hey, God of War is a PS4 game, Grand Turismo is a PS4 game. Because what we're releasing as the Vita 2 is a tiny PS4 Pro. That would have been the ideal thing for me, right? We're releasing downgraded things. Here you go. It's handheld. That, that, that I think, would have been perfect. Like, give me something capable, like a Steam Deck, exactly. Something capable of running the majority of games coming out right now. Maybe not as well, but in a scaled-down version. Give me a... Vita 2 compatibility thing on the PS store, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Do you think, and this is where I think a big difference between Valve is and them, do you think Sony has as much of a motivation as Valve to come out with something that you would not be primarily buying titles for in and of itself? And the reason I bring that up is if they're going to put R&D and put these things out and put it at a reasonable price, you would think they do so with the expectation that they're not really going to make much off of the physical hardware, but once you start buying games, they'll make it back up. So like switch does that by being the only system that they have in Nintendo, right? So everything you buy will funnel through that system. Sony taking the steam deck approach. I don't think is as lucrative as the very broad and wildly varied PC market that Valve is operating within. Do you know what I mean? I do. So 
why would Sony, from a business standpoint, be motivated to make a Vita 2 that's just a tiny PS4? So your thing sounds like a consumer wish, but how does Sony reconcile that with a way for them to make money within that? Uh, I'm not saying it can't happen. I'd just be curious to hear someone's thought process behind how they would monetize that. Like, would you have to pay for... Vita 2 support? $5 patch? Maybe. Would that work? Would people riot in the streets and say, well, I don't have to do that for my Steam Deck? Probably. I mean, mean, yeah. (laughs) Um, But I think the best way to do it is like, hey, these games are all here. And then, you know, right now we have the $80 version of Call of Duty's got both. Well, guess what? The $100 version of Call of Duty's got all three. You know, or maybe the PS4 version of that bundle is the v- is the Vita 2 version. I mean, yeah, there's exclusive games and there's, you know, deals they make to get stuff on there. But the vast majority of the library is like, hey, you can play God of War a lot shittier, but you can play it here in bed. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think something you touched on that's the real problem that Nintendo smartly were able to avoid is... uh bifurcating your development studios by making them have to develop for more than one piece of hardware. And what I mean by that is used to like the Wii U and the 3DS, Nintendo had to basically say, we have to have certain developers that are dedicated to making handheld games and certain developers that are dedicated to making console games. And now that they've made a console that is a handheld, they were able to move all of their studios to design on one platform that still gets to do both things. The problem with Sony making a standalone thing like the Vita is that to make exclusive Vita titles that make sense for their monetization efforts, that means that they have to either have first party support for the system, which is what people would want and expect, but that means they have to go, sorry, sucker punch. I know y'all were wanting to make goes to Tsushima too, but we really need a certain level of your studio to break off and go and make an exclusive title for the Vita 2. And then that means that there's that much less support for your PS5, which is already a known success. So I think most people are in that thing where as much as I would love a Vita 2, I think Sony's like, we're making hand over fist with PS5. Why would we not just support that singular thing and then PSVR 2 the motivations there because it is a PS5 game and a lot of those games could be both but then it could also be dedicated PSVR games and it's a less competitive market or it is more competitive in some ways but it's less established so you have more room to play um, something that we didn't really have in the news but I think was interesting because it came out today did you see where um because we're talking about the idea of profit and, and market share and all these things. Did you see where Microsoft put out what they viewed as the uh, market share for PlayStation 5 versus Xbox? Yeah, it's like 70% PlayStation, right? So it, it kind of changes. And I would like to do this on the show just because I think it's really uh, an interesting thing. So the guy that said it is Brad Smith. I don't know who that is. Uh, But Brad Smith's words are, quote, think about the market in Europe. It is a market where Sony has an 80% share. Globally, it's about 70 to 30 uh, in favor of PlayStation. 
In Japan, it's about 96 to 4 in favor of PlayStation. These numbers have been remarkably steady for two decades. Even last year, when there were issues with Sony's supply chain, they came back strong. Sony outsold Microsoft by 69 to 31 in favor of PlayStation towards the end of last year. So this comes from Brad Smith. So... First thing I noticed is that every bit of this is clearly happening as a result of the upcoming uh, thing for the Activision Blizzard (laughs) trials that are going on and some of the hearings. But do you notice that they completely choose to negate Nintendo from this conversation entirely as if PlayStation's a monolith and that there is no one else besides Microsoft that is competing? Do you get where I'm coming from? Um, yeah. Yeah, I think for the most part I do. Um, it's just hard. It's hard to say. Because I was looking and I was trying to think, well, why would you not include Nintendo's numbers? And I started thinking, well, if this is primarily looking at Activision Blizzard, Activision Blizzard does not have a ton of games that are supporting Switch. So they're able to kind of leave Switch out of the conversation because they can go, well, even if Sony does say, well, we don't have 80% of Europe's market share. We have 60%. Nintendo has 40% and you have 10 or something crazy. I, I don't know if what the actual breakdown is, but the point being is that an 80-20 in favor of PlayStation makes it sound like PlayStation is this monolithic thing. And in regards to what would be lost if Activision Blizzard does get bought out by PlayStation or what could potentially be lost in a competitive sense, since it's not on Nintendo, they're able to pretend and ignore and fluff the numbers up to where it looks like PlayStation is just slaughtering the house. And do you know how crazy it is to say 96 to 4 in favor of PlayStation when talking about Japan and not talk about the Switch, which is by and large the dominant system in Japan? Yeah, I noticed that. I. It's funny because I almost wonder if these numbers, whose argument it helps more, right? Does it help Microsoft's or Sony's? Because Sony is saying they're hurting us and our players. And then Microsoft is going 70% of players are on PlayStation. Doesn't that prove Sony right in a lot of ways? Well, yeah, but at the same time, doesn't that also prove Microsoft right in that if they're already this far in advance, how could Microsoft getting Activision Blizzard while also signing all these 10-year agreements about how they want their systems, their games in more and more places. How does that coincide with specifically how this is going to play out for them? You get what I'm saying? I do. Yeah. So like with that, in fact, the last piece of rapid fire news is that Microsoft signed a deal with Nintendo to bring Call of Duty to Switch for the next 10 years. And they call it day and date and feature parity. And then they're also bringing all of their titles to GeForce now streaming. Um, for 10 years and they're doing this in what seems to be a a means to hopefully alleviate any pressure that would come and say, look, we're trying to put these systems elsewhere. Um, So with all that in mind, I think it still comes into the mind. If you're going to say that you're signing a 10 year agreement to bring call of duty to the switch, then why don't we talk about where switch exists in the marketplace? What is its market Mm -hmm. share? How does that impact what Sony does? Sony is not only competing with you. They are competing with Nintendo. Yeah, and the, uh, the interesting part of all this is like, 
it's got to be posturing in a lot of ways, right? Because there's no shot that they're going to be ready next year with a Call of Duty, excuse me, for a Switch, right? That's not possible. So what does this even mean? <laughs> I think it would be the first fully developed Call of Duty game under our reign, if we were to get them, would be contractually obligated to go to Switch. You know, somebody asked earlier, and I get it. It's an actually reasonable question for people who may not know how these things work. I saw someone ask, whether it was for fanboy purposes or genuine curiosity, how can Microsoft sign contractual agreements before this is even ha- closed when they don't own this? And it's a good question with a simple answer. They're basically saying in the case that we do end up with this company, we've already signed a contractual agreement that as long as this does happen, this is what's going to happen as a result. So this happened, therefore this happens. Uh, so it's basically just a contingent contract where it's contingent on whether or not their deal close. This is something that you see when you're like buying a house and you're waiting to see if you're going to secure funding. You have a contract that's contingent on the fact that you will have the money. And if you don't, the contract doesn't go through because you didn't buy the house. You don't have it. And then it just moves on to the next thing. Um, but if you do have the money, then the house is contractually yours. Um, it's an interesting thing uh, to to see, and uh, of course, no news of ten year agreements with PlayStation because PlayStation's still arguing that this is not for the good of anyone, which continues to be an interesting conversation in my mind. Of um, there's always that thing where, regardless of why PlayStation is doing it, I think the end goal of their thing still is fairly true. Like, just because you're saying you're giving Call of Duty to Switch for 10 years doesn't mean that as soon as that 10 years is up that you're not going to turn it back in and make it exclusive, which right. is what Sony's argument is. Eventually, no matter whether it's the day after it closes or 10 years down the line, it puts them in a position to possibly strong-arm the industry. Yeah. it it That's, I think, that's clearly Sony's whole thing. Is like, you're telling us this now, and you may not hold to it later. And it's the same thing that the FTC said. It's like, it got misconstrued a little bit in the news, but they never the FTC never said that they lied. They said that they said one thing and did another one, which makes them wary of their guarantees. And that's the same. It's exactly what Sony is saying. Well, a really, really good um, com- comparison point here is going to be Live Nation and Ticketmaster. So back in 2010, 11, it was when Obama was president, because uh, I know it happened under his cabinet. Uh, Live Nation bought Ticketmaster, or they merged rather, right? And part of the thing of them merging was that there was a little very bit of antitrust law that came into place where they said, well, we'll let it go through, but you have to make this promise that you're not going to do this, this, or this. And since that has happened and that's closed and some time passed, they have eventually gone on to do everything that they promised they would not do. But there's no one enforcing the promise. Right. And so the question that has to be asked from us as people who are outside looking in and not looking at it from the same motivation as PlayStation, right? Looking at it as consumers of gaming as a whole is even if they make promises to the current people who are asking these questions and making these decisions, once it goes through, who is going to hold them to test or hold them to account 
if five years down the line they choose to completely forego anything they said? What right. happens if five years in they decide to break all their contractual agreements and pay? Maybe they want to do it. Maybe they have to pay because there's some clause. But what happens? Does then the FTC come in and go, you broke one of the contingent things that we said for this, so we're going to force you to split up now? Yeah, or I mean, do they do they what they do did that? with Live Nation and Ticketmaster, where they've done absolutely nothing, and you're getting five thousand dollar Bruce Springsteen tickets? You know yeah. what I mean? I and do. that's the argument. Whether or not PlayStation's doing it in good faith is a completely different thing. But that is the argument that's at the crux of this: is that in the long run, if this is allowed, what are the chances that Microsoft would have the ability to strongly push things up, raise prices? It doesn't matter if PlayStation's done all these things. It's about whether or not this is going to strengthen Microsoft's ability to do that and potentially negatively impact the entire gaming market as a result. I do not have the answer to the question, but I don't think it's a bad question. Yeah, I don't either. It's one of those, I guess the only way we have an answer is if it turns out to be cheaper for them to pay a fine than break their contract with Activision. Right. Well, the real thing is, and this comes down to where you feel about the government, right? But the real question is, is that if this is allowed to go through under our current rule, who is going to make sure that if down the line they break the agreement, there is a, comp- a consequence for it? And if there's not, which they can clearly point to Live Nation and Ticketmaster as an example of how there's not been, then what does it matter? As long as you can say the right thing and do the right thing for long enough to get the the lens off of you, then down the line, you can kind of do whatever you want. And that's what people are asking for. And so the repercussion would have to be if you do this thing or if you step out of bounds or if you do this certain thing that could hurt the market as a whole or that we view as hurting the market as a whole, then we legally have the force to tell you to break apart. And you know, Activision will have to once again become its own company. And Blizzard may have to break off and become its own company or, you know, whatever it be, however they decide to break it up. Um, And then whether or not you want that, it's just at least if we're operating from within that being the worry and all of the concessions being in, in favor of that, then there needs to be someone that really says five years down the line under a new administration, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to just ignore the fact that you broke all your promises. Yeah. It'll, at the very bare minimum, ruin the next time they go for one of these. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. So do you think, uh, just because I think it's curious, do you think Switch Call of Duty games are physically on the cartridge? Or do you think it's just a streaming? thousand percent streaming. <laughs> yeah, Not even a there's chance. There's no way. Yeah. Unless they do a Switch exclusive version, which could be an interesting way to go about it. I know. He said feature parody day and date. That sounds like a lie, but okay. <laughs> my real curiosity, maybe I'll change my mind, but I doubt it. Uh, I'm waiting to see how Hogwarts on Switch runs and what that does. Yeah, it's funny because my brother's girlfriend wants to play it on Switch. And I'm just like, why? You have a PS5, why? <laughs> Man, it's funny hearing you say that because I've heard other people say I'm wanting to play it on Switch. And I was thinking about that game today and even thinking of it as a PS4 title. I think that game would be rife with way, and there already is a surprising amount of load screens in that game, and it's fine because they're fairly quick. But can you imagine that game on PS4? Can you imagine that game on Switch? No, I can't. Ooh. Ooh. I can't even imagine it on PS4. So that Switch version, I, I can imagine it. 
But I think within the context of things that are going now, the loads would be the loads would kill any sense of discovery that the game has. Certainly, when you're moving throughout Hogwarts, the castle, so it's, it's so dense and so packed with stuff, and the way the game chooses to load that out, can you? All those doors that take a you know a second and a half to open on PS5 are going to suddenly take twenty second load windows or thirty second load windows that go to a black screen on on Switch. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or maybe not Switch, but PS4 for sure. Switch does have essentially solid state memory, but there's other factors that slow down how quickly it can load. (laughs) Exactly. Um, Because I'll tell you right now, there's some Switch games that have incredibly long load times. Uh, It is what it is. Kind of comes with the territory. All right, man. So to round this episode out, what we like to do at the end of the episode is... Any question that we liked that we did not get to within the main episode, take a second and try and knock those out. We have one today that we did not feel fit within other parts of the episode, and that comes from Mr. Velvet Thunder over on uh, our Discord. He's one of our patrons. He says, which video game character do you think would give the best hugs? Like if you had a stressful day and just need a strong but tender cuddle. Mm-hmm. Chris, do you have an yeah. answer? Oh, I have an I have an incredible answer. Um, okay, <laughs> I got very excited when I saw this question in the Discord, and the only right answer is Asura from, from Asura's, Asura's Wrath? Wrath. Yes. Ooh. Ooh. He's got eight okay. arms, dude. Yeah, that's the best answer. <laughs> I mean, your entire body will just be. It's one big hug. <laughs> like your whole body is being hugged. Man, it's yeah, is that your four feet. hugs or one hug? I mean, either way, it's perfect. <laughs> no, I'm just curious. Like, well, if it's all happening it, right? simultaneously, you're either getting one big hug or you're getting four regular hugs, <laughs> but at once. Okay. My answer is a little more uh, morbid just because I thought it was funny. Oh, no. The main character of Naughty Bear. The 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 Naughty Bear. The daddy. Yeah, he would he would hug you. He's cuddly. He's a teddy bear. And then he would end your miserable existence <laughs> in this on this mortal plane. You know what I mean? I do know what you mean, yeah. Two for one, baby. Okay, two for <laughs> a two for one. Give me a twofer. That was the first thing that came to mind. I was like, that would just be funny because it's like you get a hug and then he's like <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> just executes you. The fluff balls come out of the back of your head. Yeah. And there's characters that are funny to think about, like Kratos giving you a hug. Because Kratos is like, if I were to try and hug Kratos, knowing all of the information I know about Kratos, and he came in and he was going to hug me, I would immediately think about him tearing off Apollo's head. And I'd be like, <laughs> nope. Good. nope. I don't know, dog. <laughs> yeah, I'd be like, no, nah, I'm good. I'm good, bro. Like, I, I said, I'm good. <laughs> That would be the entire thing. But then the question is, is is if Kratos is coming in to hug you, whether you want him to do it or not, do you say no? No. (laughs) Would you be terrified? Yes. Yeah, I think so too. Like a Sir is a planet killing God. I would be fucking freaking out as he's coming towards me. (laughs) But then it's like as, as each hand's fingers lock on my back, and I just feel relaxed and fall into a deep slumber. I'm I'm happy again. 
So, look, a, a more serious answer that I think would work, even though I'm, I'm curious, because he also strikes me as the kind of guy who would accidentally hug you to death, like, with love and full intentions of good, but Murray from the Sly Cooper trilogy, the Sly Cooper games, he's just a big, lovable doof, and he's a big hippo with a you know big, floofy stomach. I feel like he'd give a solid hug. You know what I mean? Like, there's something... This is weird, but I feel like there's something about people who have just a larger, uh, like, physical size and appearance. That it's kind of what you're talking about with Asura, right? Where it's like yeah. the feeling of your of more of your body being encapsulated in the hug somehow makes the hug more inviting. For the most part, it depends, right? Like it's terrifying when it's four arms and a super muscly dude, but like, Fair. you know, I mean, at the at the same step, I can understand that. There's something nice about hugs from bigger people. I don't really know how to describe that. Like, they don't, I mean, they can be tall as well, but typically someone who just has a larger stature and frame gives a better hug. I mean, I'm just hearing that you're, you're into bears. So good for you, buddy. I mean, would I be a bear? Yeah. I don't know. I've never really, I mean, no one on this show has ever seen how ridiculously covered in hair my body is. Uh, not that this is the time and or place to, reveal that but the point being is i'm quite the hairy person <laughs> brett take your shirt off you ready <laughs> oh oh okay there you go for anyone who watches this on video you just got a little bit of something and we just got demonetized <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, yeah. <laughs> yeah probably hey you know what if you want to support the show since we just got demonetized <laughs> even though we were never monetized to begin with head over to patreon.com slash give us a little dollar per month support these nips Support the nips. Free the nips from the stage capital. Support the nips. Triangle squared. <laughs> Triangle nips. There we go. Yeah. Nip squared. I like that one. <laughs> that one's better. Yeah. All right. So that was our last question. And where I kind of want to come into this uh, is a question that came as a result of... Uh, one of our listeners, and that question was based around one of our big answers, or one of our big things for today, and that was PS Plus. So, Jehudi's question about whether or not you think Game Pass or PS Plus will continue to push players and maybe yourself to purchase games anymore, or at least be very selective about their purchases. So, we're going to repurpose that into us having an opportunity to hear from you guys about whether or not you're worried or enjoying the climate that we are currently in of very dense, rotating um, services like this, subscription services. Uh, so with that said, Chris, do you have any final words before Naughty Bear comes, hugs you, and frees you from your mortal coil? Um, I mean, I, I have something that you and the listeners might find interesting. I did a, I logged into ChatGPT and I said, write an episode of Triangle Squared, a PlayStation podcast. Would you like me to read what it wrote for us? Did you give it enough information to do that? Or how does it even get that? That's all I said. Okay, let's hear it. All right. <laughs> <clears throat> the episode of Triangle Squared opens with hosts Brett and Chris sitting in front of a table covered with various PlayStation-related merchandise, including figurines, games, and collector's editions. 
They exchanged greetings and back and banter back and forth for a few moments before diving into the latest news and updates from the world of PlayStation. Brett leans forward, a gleam in his eye, and says, So Chris, have you heard the latest rumors about the next God of War game? Chris raises, raises an eyebrow. No, I haven't. What's the scoop? Sounds like me. <laughs> Brett grins. Well, according to a leaked image, the game is going to take place in ancient Egypt. And get this! Kratos is going to be facing off against the gods of the Egyptian pantheon. Chris looks skeptical. That sounds pretty wild. Do we have any confirmation on this? Brett shrugs. No, not yet, but there's been a lot of rumors swirling about the next God of War game. We'll just have to see what Sony Santa Monica has in store for us. The hosts move on to discuss the latest PlayStation Plus free games and upcoming releases, including a heated debate over which game they're most excited for. My favorite part. Brett argues passionately for, for, for Horizon Forbidden West, while Chris makes a compelling case for Deathloop. <laughs> After a few minutes of friendly argument, they shift gears and dive into the main topic of the show, of the top 10 PlayStation games of all time. The hosts take turns listing their favorite games, debating their rankings, and reminiscing about their favorite moments. As the episode draws to a close, Brett and Chris thank their listeners and remind them to leave a review and rating on their favorite podcast platform. They also remind them to sign up at patreon.com slash nartech and join our Discord, which is in the link which you can find in the, on the link below in the description. You can find on Patreon. And you can potentially find on in the Facebook group, which is facebook.com slash triangle squared, where one of us or one of our wonderful mods will let you in. They Here's sign problem, off, Chris. Uh, go, ahead, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go they ahead. sign off with a promise to return next week with even more PlayStation news and updates, leaving their audience eagerly anticipating the next episode of Triangle Squared. The music fades as Brett starts reading the Patreon names. Okay, Chris. <laughs> I, need you to, I need you to admit something to me right now. Uh, okay. How much of this was bullshit? Literally only the stuff at the end where I started like <laughs> putting in like our actual yeah. like ending rigmarole. That was it. Yeah. Everything else is here. <laughs> Your compelling case for Deathloop. I want to hear it. I don't have one. That was the one point where I'm like, I could see Brett with Horizon, but where did you pull Deathloop from? <laughs> Chris, uh, Bigfoot just walked across uh, the back of your frame. So anyone who's watching, just uh, be ready. I I'm want sorry you to understand. What? Yeah, a, bo- a body, a, 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 you know, a, a corporal being just walked across oh, the back. Jesus Christ. My dad is in here. You scared the shit out of me because hey, time- tell my dad, tell your dad <laughs> that I'm still waiting for my uh, my He's Longhorn telling steakhouse. me there was a ghost in the background, and it's happened before. And then I turn around, and there's a <laughs> person standing there. <laughs> I'm still waiting for that Longhorn Steakhouse gift card. I'll let him know. <laughs> One of these days, I will get it, Mister Figueroa. <laughs> your restaurant is delicious. Brett says I had him in years. <laughs> I've never eaten his. That sounds good. My dad says next time you're here, we'll buy dinner. Heck yeah. There we go. Look, now I have a compelling uh, reason to come. Nice. In Arkansas. That's why I went to Texas. Arkansas. Yeah. 
<laughs> sure. So it'll send you some hey, coupons. Hey, there we go. There we go. <laughs> that is all I needed to hear. Chris, thank you for joining me, buddy. Yeah. For, for my own fun, can you please send me a screenshot of that chat GPT? Yeah. I'll I send- just want to see it. I love it. Everyone, rate the fake episode of Triangle Square to PlayStation Podcast. But don't forget to rate this episode on your favorite podcast service. Leave a review. Let people know what we liked about the show or what you liked about the show, rather. And if it's worth their time. Or if you're on YouTube, subscribe, like the video, share it with any friends that you think would like it. And we will be back next week as ChatGPT guarantees for episode 296. But for now, this has been Triangle Square, a PlayStation podcast. And we would like to, as always, give a shout out to our patrons, Spencer, Brandon Edwards, Savoy Prime, Alex, Barry Rogers, Stingray X, It's a Sin to Win, aka Sean, Awesome Dave 1337, Aztec King, Lechion 69, The Lord Corgi, Salvador Garcia, Hammond Egger, Bailey Robertson, Rob Warpoint, Josh Drago, Mark Schutz, Cypher Primus, uh, Jason Clendenning, Kyle Grimm, Richard Schaefer, Rude Days 93, Joshua Lago, Landis, Tyler B., Zachary Sawyer, Allie Valiant, Kevin Bacon Bits, Christopher, Luke Rabbit, Danny Villalobos, Bloody Red, Jehudi MD, Dylan Kirby, Funk Turkey, Tyler Powers, No Fate, Josh Ayers. Look, I'm going to tell you right now, I've already realized that somehow it just went to every single person who's ever been a patron. So <laughs> this is the time where we're just thanking everyone who's ever been a patron. So shout out, guys. Y'all know who you are. Shout but out. also shout out to Kyle Grimm, Kevin Bacon Bits, all these different people. In case you didn't get got Matthew Green, Sean Santarude, and the final month for one Mr. Constantly Kenny, who has been a longtime supporter of the show. Kenny, we hope you've enjoyed your time being a patron. And regardless of why you feel like you need to leave, we appreciate everything you've done for the show. Everyone, we'll see you next week. <laughs>